where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Joining us on this episode is a man that's worked his way up through the Baseball Ontario Umpire Program, has worked minor professional baseball, multiple international events, culminating with two World Baseball Classics, and a guy that's trying to bring back parachute pants, Trevor Grieve. Topics we cover are his local, national, and international experiences, the road to the 2020 Olympic Games, buying shoes with Greg Gibson, and J.K. Thunder Bay. So sit back, relax, get ready. It's coming. Interesting 1990s movie facts that you might not have known, but soon you will. In the movie Shawshank Redemption, there is a baseball scene. In said scene, there is the character Red, who is played by Morgan Freeman. It is reported that it took over nine hours to film this scene from various camera angles. That meant that Morgan was throwing the ball all day. Even though he looked comfortable in the scene, it is said when Morgan Freeman arrived on the set the next day, he had his arm in a sling. Wow, that's a lot of throwbacks to the pitcher. Our recommendation is, before they film that scene next time, they should just send him to umpire a couple of 13U doubleheaders. That'll toughen him up. But anyways, welcome back to The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. What can we say? We're jumping right here into Season 2, getting a fresh start in 2021, and really excited to put out some great content this year. Now, before we get into what we can expect for 2021, let's do a recap of the last episode from 2020, or Season 1, with none other than Major League Baseball umpire Stu Shearwater. So if you haven't checked it out, here is a clip from that show. Went to play the Prairie Thunder, played defensive line there. I actually scrapped a couple offensive line games there too. We were hardcore in injuries. Again, Regina's, you know, we didn't have a big pool to pick from. So maybe I got benefit of the doubt of going to a few. But uh, uh, no, I, I definitely went to a lot of provincials and Western Canadians and, uh, you know, a couple nationals. So you just got to get there and work on things. So if uh, you're fine and you're struggling or you don't feel comfortable on a plate, pick up a game uh, in a lower level. That's a great idea. And just get back there and get, you know, get your mindset and, and figure it out. What do you, what kind of dirt are you digging up on me here, man? What's no, going we- on here? Got a call from one of my supervisors and I like to bust each other up a little bit. So when he called, he kind of, you know, he had our, you know, our, our league president on as well. And they're just like, hey, Stu, we just want to, you know, have a talk to you. And I was like, oh, crap, what am I, what did I do now? I <laughs> must have done something. I screwed something up. <laughs> um, I get released. I didn't know what was going on. And they kind of, uh, they kind of really lead you on to like, you know, you, you've had some things to work on, you know, and you, you just haven't, haven't quite got there yet. And, you know, and so now they're really bringing you down like you did something crappy. And then, and then he broke through, you know, after you're pretty much, I'm at the floorboards of my, of the car, the rental van or something. Uh, he, he, he eventually told me that I was going to go to LA to, to work my first series. Um, so it, yeah, it was a pretty cool experience um, to get that phone call. That was something that I'll never forget. Wow. How can you forget the first time you get a call to work a major league game? So thanks once again, Stu, for coming on and sharing with us those stories and so many others. So if you haven't got the chance to listen to it, head on over to Spotify, tune in, Apple iTunes podcast, Google podcast, Amazon Alexa, anywhere you really get your podcasts and check it out. Okay, before we get into this week's show, let's just 
give you a quick update on what's happening around here on the leading edge and what you can expect. Now, last year, we got in the habit of dropping a show almost every week there for a little while. What I'm going for this year is to drop a show every two weeks or so. We're going to try this schedule for a little while because it takes a little bit more time to edit and it won't make me feel as rushed to get the show out. Okay, great. That's out of the way. Let's get into this week's episode. Now, without further ado, Leading Edge Entertainment is proud to bring on an umpire that started working in baseball Ontario, has worked minor professional baseball, the World Baseball Classic, and various international championships, is Baseball Canada's umpire representative for the 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo, Japan, and a guy that can set you up with a real good deal on Tupperware if you're looking, Trevor Grieve. Trevor, welcome to the Leading Edge. Thanks, Phil. That's quite the intro. <laughs> well, you got quite the resume. Let's not jump the gun on the Olympics yet. Uh, something called coronavirus. Yeah, we don't really like to talk about that too much on this show, but I guess you could say that you're an Olympic delegate or a nominee or what would be the technical term? Yeah, I don't I, I don't know. An Olympic official. I mean, uh, I have my flight booked, but, uh, you know, fingers crossed at this point that uh, we move forward. What that looks like, I'm still not sure. Might uh, might be a fanless Olympics at this point, maybe. Fingers crossed it still moves forward this year. Might be no fans in the stands, but what is it? 3.6 billion people watch it on TV. So you'll have your chance to shine eventually. Hopefully so. Well, we definitely look to talk about the Olympics in a little bit, but let's get into the show now. One of the first things we like to do around here is allow the guests to talk about their fantastic playing careers. Now, Trevor, share with us, did you play baseball growing up? What was your playing career like? Well, I'm glad the second part of that question took out the word fantastic. I did play baseball. I played until I was about probably 17 or 18. Played some competitive sort of AAA baseball here and then some high school baseball. I wouldn't say I was the greatest. My skill set was probably less than what I thought it was. I would say that if there was uh, some umpires from Ontario listening, they probably didn't think I was the best person as a player when they were umpiring because for some reason I always thought they were wrong. So I played until I was about 17, 18. And probably hit up a few. I think I went to a few different camps for some different, you know, Canadian camps where some of those major league teams would come into town and do some scouting sort of open tryout camps and just didn't have it. You know, at the time, I, I think baseball in Canada is the most part has really grown. At the time, it was new here in Canada, I would say, you know, the program and, and they were looking for a very specific thing, right? You know, they wanted your 17 year old. They wanted you throwing 91 to 93 at their camps. Right. And if you didn't, they could find the exact same sort of player in the U.S. with their numbers. Uh, I think our program's grown a lot, more opportunities, but uh, that was the extent of mine, playing through to high school. Considering you didn't make the cut on some of those teams, you got to ask you, like, what were you, the bullpen catcher? Oh, wow. Weren't good. I was, a, I was a starting pitcher and a catcher, usually alternated between the two. You know, I thought I nailed the corners on a lot of pitches, but uh, apparently the strike zone of Scarborough back in the late 90s was a lot smaller than it is now. Who were some of the ringleaders back then? Uh, I think back that back in the day, I always the one who always gives me the hardest time is still Ed Quinlan. Ed <laughs> Quinlan, he won't let you won't let people hear the end of how terrible a player was and how we argued all the time. And a lot of local Scarborough guys, but uh, Ed Quinlan, you know Tony Carnellos uh, oh, yes. in, in the back in the day there. Uh, what they they decided to refer to ourselves as the inner circle at one point in time. I'm not sure. 
when exactly we got that name, but uh, those were the guys calling balls and strikes in my playing days. Wow, Trevor, those are two big names from around the Baseball Canada umpire world. Ed Quinlan, of course, the supervisor and evaluation lead, as well as the president of Baseball Ontario and the 2020 Umpire Development Award recipient from Baseball Canada. And then you mentioned Tony Carnello as well. A lot of people don't appreciate, but Tony is a guy that works or is the vice president for Kahunaverse Sports. So any umpire out there that's wearing your umpire gear, hat, jersey, Tony's probably handled it or dealt with the business. So those are some big names that have followed you around now, share with us, Trevor, you're not just a baseball-specific individual. You also have a background in, is it swimming? You do your research. <laughs> uh, or maybe Google's become my worst enemy. I'm not really sure. When you're a CIS conference champion, it's hard not to want to quote about it. <laughs> you know what? I started, I started competitive swimming when I was five and a half. It was probably the first thing I was doing. And uh, I swam all the way through to, actually, all the way through to the end of high school. I took a couple of visits, actually took almost all my five visits down to the U.S. for college to see if I'd swim down there in university. And actually just life took me in a different direction at that point in time and wasn't happy and sort of took a back, you know, took a back step away from swimming and took a year off at the end there, my second half of my last year of high school. Uh, and then decided against that and went to University of Guelph. And ended up getting back into swimming after my first year. So I took a year off there, which for me was a great decision. Gave me the opportunity to, you know, meet a whole group of friends outside of swimming and then get back into it again. But at a, at a lesser, uh, I don't know if lesser is the right word. Uh, let's just say I didn't swim nearly as much in the morning as I used to when I was younger. <laughs> yes. None of, none of those early morning 4.30 wake-up calls in university. So it was much more relaxed. It was more fun. Uh, they are much more flexible, and uh, actually, I, I love swimming through university there at Guelph. Now, I asked the swimming question because I do have a background in swimming myself. And now, Trevor, you mentioned it in the morning swims. A lot of people don't appreciate it, but swimmers, they put a lot of time in the pool. They're in the pool at 6 a.m., and they're back again at 3 in the afternoon. Can you share with us some of the work ethic that you put into being a competitive swimmer and how that might have helped you become an umpire or a better umpire over the years? Yeah, first of all, I'm going to give a shout out to my parents because you talk about commitment to those 4.30 morning wake-ups, you know, until yes. until I was 16 and got my, my G2 driver's license here in Ontario and there was a car waiting around the corner so my parents didn't have to do that much longer. Um, I, I owe a lot of credit to them to get me to those early morning practices. But you're right, you know, in terms of focus, I think, uh, you know, swimming, you have people in the pool with you, but a lot of that time is spent in your own head, right? You're up and down the pool. You're, you just go into a sort of a zone while you're going up and down and thinking about all kinds of different things. And I guess the, the comparison to that is, you know, on a baseball field, we love to get together in between innings and, and stuff. But for most of the part during the game, you're by yourself. You really got to focus on staying in the game because before you know it, you take your eyes off the ball, you snap out of it, something. We've all done that. You look up and a pitcher's taking his foot off the rubber and you think, oh my God, did he just step off? Did he balk? How did I miss that, right? And so that focus and that did it. And I think the other thing was just hard work, you know? It's all those years, you know that it's hard work. And I think that applies to just sort of life in general for everybody, right? It's, it's one of those things that makes you a, a better person. You, you put all that effort in and... Uh, you see the rewards and no matter what we do in life, I think of so baseball too, but putting in all those summers of 125 games, you know, getting the experience, then heading to umpire school and they all run parallel in that sense of that, if that makes sense to you. 
Oh, no question. And all the hard work eventually paid off, like I said, to becoming a conference champion. What was your specialty? Well, since you have a swimming background, I can say I was, uh, I swam the IM the most. So I had a little bit of background in everything. Jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> Pretty much. When I was 11 or 12, I'd say breaststroke. And then I had this crazy growth, sp growth spurt. And all of a sudden, I couldn't swim breaststroke anymore. And over time, I became a backstroker and butterfly and then transitioned into university where 200 meters was way too long. Uh, 100 <laughs> meters seemed a lot more appropriate at that point in time. So I stuck with the 200 IM and 200 back. And those were two of my strong ones. I, I find all that, uh, you know, CIS, like you mentioned in those two, but really enjoyed things just like the 100 meter butterfly and backstroke and some shorter stuff, a lot less work. That fly is not easy. It doesn't matter what you say. Usually the gross bird helps those guys with the fly. Well, I have been working out, but, uh, you know, in all fairness, I'd look over in the pool some days and those guys were jacked. Oh, yes. Think like, what am I doing here? Yeah. <laughs> scrawny, scrawny little guy. I, I was no Michael Phelps. Let's put it that way. No Michael Phelps. That's fair. I was going to ask you what your specialty was. Oh, I'm I know sorry. you're asking the questions, but yeah. you caught my interest. Freestyle. I was more of an endurance guy. I did some minor competitive swimming, nothing at your levels at all but then eventually got into endurance swimming and I've competed three Ironmans, lots wow. of time in the pool. If people could see me right now praising <laughs> you, I, I, I'm, I'm yeah. dropping it. There's uh, a lot of respect right there. That's uh, impressive to say the least. Why, thank you. But I prided myself more on the buoyancy aspect of the extra. Hey, the extra what is it? I think the first swim part's four kilometers, isn't it? Three point, technically oh, so 3,800 meters, but when you get in the open waters, it's not necessarily in a straight line. You're not chasing black lines all day. So no. the good buoyancy, swim. It, it, buoyancy's not getting you through that then, just so you know. No. Fair enough. I appreciate that. <laughs> but the goal in that one, I like I always say, um, if you get on the bike, you can coast. If you get running, you can walk. But if you stop swimming, you're kind of drowned. So you just got to get through it. <laughs> very good but this is about you now let's move on why did you get into umpiring money i love How's it. that for a quick answer love it it's the most true and yeah. honest form of why we all do it 16 17 years old at a time on nights i wasn't playing i got asked to go to the local diamond and, and help out and, and start umpiring and at the time they provided some equipment and i don't even remember what you're making 15 dollars a game something like that but you know, every penny counts. And if you're sitting at home doing nothing, so the short answer is money. Got in to, to try and make some money in the summers, put some stuff aside. And, and then as I got closer to university, you know, you'd be working 125 games or so and all that money would be paying for, well, I mean, guys who do it now, I look back and think, how did I ever do that? You know, yeah. doing whatever you did in the day and then you go out and every night you're working a game or all due respect and credit to the guys out there that work those tournaments on weekends with four games a day i don't know how you do it i really don't but uh i started and loved it and, and sort of got its own set of legs from there have to ask it but i can probably guess the answer do you still do it for the money today no 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 i uh you know what i do it for the people i i love the time that we get to spend together it's it's about you know shooting the crap before the game sitting in the dressing room people you haven't seen for whether it's, you know, a couple months or a couple weeks and that hour you get to spend ahead of time and in between innings, assuming nothing's gone on the inning previously, of course. And, uh, and then after the game, a couple wings, a couple pops. And uh, I'd say in the last few years, obviously, the, 
the travel, right? Uh, I've done a lot more stuff, like you said earlier, with WBSC and sort of a give back and, you know, get to travel and meet new people and uh, still stay involved with umpiring, and but just from a different perspective, that's all. Well, there you have it, people. Trevor Grieve is a man of the people. <laughs> I don't know if I'm a man of the people, but uh, you know what, I've, I've enjoyed umpiring. It's, it's given me a lot. It's really given me a lot. It's getting to the point where it's soon my turn. Well, I've, I'd like to think I've given back over the, the last 10 years, but moving forward, even more give back. That's the plan. So That is the beautiful thing about umpiring and about the game of baseball is the camaraderie and the people that we do meet because the 50 bucks brings you there the first time, but I think it's your partners and it's the opportunities off the field that really keep you around. Absolutely. It's the tournaments and even, you know, I'd say, I'd say a national championship, but even more local than that, it's your weekend tournaments. Some of the, some of the best memories I have were literally before I'd gone to umpire school and any of that in Scarborough, uh, you'd have a weekend tournament or we used to host the Ontario elimination tournaments, which was the weekend and everyone would get together. You'd all meet at the ballpark at the end of the day and, you do crazy things like alternating jersey colors on the field, stuff that nobody would recognize if they weren't looking. And then you'd go sit there for the night and spend a couple hours chatting and learning, and especially as a young umpire, you know, asking questions and listening to the war stories people are telling. And uh, as you get older, the same thing happens, even at the national level. So whether it's, you know, at your local association, that's what it's all about. Oh, no question. A lot of people have the opportunity to umpire at a provincial, national, international level. But the most important thing to seeing an organization survive is making local connections. Something has to bring you back to the ball field on a Tuesday night, you know, after a hard day's work. And it's those local connections that really keep people around the game. Absolutely. It's, you know, you still think back to the relationships of people you meet when you're younger and how that plays through, whether it's on provincial committees or local associations or teaching or mentoring, those relationships are are precious to us, right? That's what keeps us involved, like you said. Uh, you know, it's hard in, in these times right now, you know, keeping those, those relationships going, right? I mean, we don't have the opportunity right now to be on the field, uh, but making the effort to reach out to those umpires and friends and having Zoom calls and FaceTime chats and talking umpiring. And I think I'm trying to make an effort. I hope everyone else is too. I think there's lots of people that are trying to make an effort and maybe to put a little pat myself in the back. This is really the whole purpose of the the podcast. It was honestly an opportunity to share some of the stories that we've probably heard. If you've hung around Trevor Grieve, you've probably heard some of these stories before. If you hung around Rob Allen, you might've heard his and Jed Cressman, you might've heard his, but you know what? It's the opportunity to share those stories because there's some fantastic stories out there with Canadian umpires. Well, to your point there, for the record, you've never heard all of Jim Cressman's stories. I guarantee that. Uh, yes. And I know you also had Ron Suchuk on, and I guarantee you haven't heard all of Ron's stories either. And even if you had, you probably could come up with some others and you'd believe them if they weren't true. Oh, no question. Those two guys are definite storytellers. Usually we try to keep the show to an hour, hour, 15 minutes, and I had to give both of them two episodes. So, so what you're saying is I should shorten my answers a little bit here. <laughs> Ah, what I'm trying to say is that the former Olympians kind of talk along, so, but they've been around the block, so they're, they're, they're given the opportunity, so that could be you someday. No, I think what you're doing is great. I've had the opportunity to listen to several of them, and uh, top-notch, top quality. I really appreciate that, but the show is about you, so let's get talking. You mentioned Ontario Championships, Provincial Championships. What are some of the leagues or championships that you've got to work in Ontario and some of the 
fun memories you've had from them? You know what? I think a lot of it, you know, at some point in, in my career sort of would just sort of be that provincial elimination championship. I, I really do have a lot of fond memories of back in the day, the, those provincial championships, you know, Don Gilbert used to be the supervisor of umpires here in Ontario, you know, local guys, Ed Quinlan, Tony Carnellos, Chubba Vague, some old school guys, you know, Gary Grinton, John Jackson who moved out to Alberta, you know, uh, the Chris Wilhelms, Chris Norton's of the world that, you know, from, from our area, we all got together and, and worked those tournaments and you committed to that whole four day weekend. Right. And it was, Every night you got there and it was a great, a great event. And then by the Sunday, you'd get the semifinal assignments and then everyone would be at one ballpark. And, you know, what I really remember most is that all the umpires that weren't umpiring were still there watching, right? It was such a supportive group of, of people. And then over the next few years, you know, I, I have to give a shout out to, uh, you know, the Dale LeGros and Ben Mercier of the world and eventually putting me in touch with, you know, Keith McConkie out there, the, the St. Catharines guys, but, uh, you know, I affectionately refer to Dale LeGros as Gramps, and I have probably now for close to 20 years, but uh, him and his fabulous wife, Nancy, there, they opened their house to me at, at some point before I got into professional baseball. And I think back to spending weekends in St. Catharines and working tournaments in Welland, and, and they'd open their house in Jim McMillan, and we'd all be there crashing and uh, probably one too many pops during the night and uh, maybe one too, too, too many swims in the pool late at night. This is the famous Leading Edge post-show edit. I don't know what it is about umpires and jumping in pools late at night, but if you want to hear more about it, check out the top of the fourth in season one with David Cass, and he'll fill you in about jumping in pools late at night. But anyways, back to the show. Those sort of events, and you know, in terms of leagues, I, I think in Ontario, we're not really as focused as you guys are at West. I think at West, there's a lot more specific leagues that you have. We, we definitely have the Inter-County League, which back in the day, and it's still one of the prestigious leagues we have here in Ontario. Uh, but I remember getting welcomed into that and, and working down at Christie Pitts there downtown, and you, you'd be sitting there, and there's no stands. It was free admission, but they had a, a great crowd and a dumpy little dressing room. But uh, working those games, you know, so that would probably be the one league that I, I work the most after, you know, your sort of local Scarborough association leagues uh, and tournaments. Uh, that's what I really think of those weekend tournaments in St. Catharines where everybody was welcomed, barbecues in the afternoon. You'd spend an hour after a game, walk back over to the LaGrosse, and then all of a sudden you're back at the ballpark. And those were the crazy days where I would work three games a day. Don't ask me to do that now, but... Uh, the old joints could handle it back then. Not anymore. Yeah, we were, I don't know. Something happens as you get older. I'm not sure what it is. Me either. But Ron Chuchuk, <laughs> you mentioned him. He has the fountain of youth. That guy's still kicking at 80-some games a year. Uh, it's impressive. Yeah. Impressive. Now, you mentioned a lot of names there, and there is one name, and you've talked about him, but I just have to shout out. Dale LeGros. I've had the opportunity to meet him at a national championship in... What you're saying and what I've experienced is 100% authentic. I, I'm so glad that you mentioned him because I've had the opportunity and it's been a while since I touched base with him, but I have a lot of respect for Dale, a real nice guy. Uh, a lot of respect. And you say nice. I, I'm going to go a step further. He might be the nicest guy I've ever met. He would, I, I hate to say the phrase, take his shirt off the back for you, but him and Nancy, they would. Both of them. Both of them. You could, you could need one shirt and you'd have two. I remember them. They would drive across the, the border when I was in, in the minor leagues and, and come down for the weekend uh, 
they also came down with another umpire, Jeff Rose and his wife, Robin. And, uh, you know, having that local support, being on the road and away from home, it, uh, it meant the world. They were, they were my second parents, if you, if you put it that way. I love to hear that because, you know, we've heard for years and years, and I to not be gender specific, the brotherhood, but I like to refer to it as the family of umpiring. And I think that's what brings me back to the field. And every community, every organization has one, but I think doesn't matter where you are. If you're an umpire, you're part of that family. And absolutely. It, it is a family. And, you know, you say that no matter where you go in this country or within a province, umpires are knocking at the door to your dressing rooms. They just want to come say hello. Uh, you know, in the last few years, I, I've known I've been out with my wife walking the dog and we'll stop at a local park and just see the young umpires there. And yeah, that sounds creepy. I get it. But, you know, knowing that that's where you came from and, oh. and to say hello and introduce yourself or, if you recognize somebody or all of that, we support each other. And, uh, and that's what it's all about. Oh, hundred percent. Now talking about some of the experiences you have, how old were you when you went to umpire school? Ooh, umpire school. I went to umpire school in 2001. I graduated in 2000 from Guelph. I went to umpire school in 2001. So I would have been 24 that year. 24. Wait, what school did you oh, go to? 23, and I went to Jim Evans. Okay, let's start talking about some of your umpire school. Was it all that you expected it to be? It's <laughs> a loaded question. You know what? I, I, I love the umpire school. I think it was all I thought it would be the first year I went. You know, you, you can ask people what it's all about, but until you get there and you're surrounded by 130 people that year at, at Jimmy's, I think it was about, that are there to all learn umpiring, right? And, and everyone comes from a background and your support of each other, even though it is competitive, you know, but again, you can, you can sort of recognize that some people are there just to learn. So that competitiveness sort of goes out the, the window, but learning, learning from guys, it was fantastic. And I actually had the luxury of teaching at Jimmy's the following two years after I got my job. So oh, wow. my umpire school years actually span over three. I went back as an apprentice the winter of 2002. And then I went back as a staff member in the winter of 2003, but it just became too hard. It was hard crossing the border at that point in time, you know, having to get a letter and pretend you're going to umpire school. Just, it was, it was too risky, especially having a job. I loved that. I loved it being there, meeting some of the other minor league guys. I have some great connections and friendships from guys that I taught with those following years. I, you know, DJ Rayburn was one guy that we taught together for those couple of years and Every time he comes to town, still we're getting together and, and having breakfast, usually down at the St. Lawrence Market, which is which is a great little spot. So great friendships came out of umpire school. It's always nice to hear about the friendships we make along the way in umpiring. Is it safe to assume that you were hired to minor professional baseball in your first year? It was. So I went in, uh, I went in 2001. It was a small year because if you remember 99 at the time, they had hired the mass resignation and only brought so many. So I think the year that I got hired, they only hired 23 people that year, which is a pretty low number. Okay. Um, usually, 35. You know, they, yeah, 35 up. Some years, a couple of years, you know, they've been up to 50 or 60, right? Where they've oh. actually had to go through the, the PBOC pool. I guess they call it an advanced course or advanced clinic now. But I was number 22. So I, I happened to get in just in the nick of time there, mid-season. And uh, otherwise, I would have had to go back the, the year after if I wanted to try again. Now, we know the Baseball Canada Umpire program has changed and morphed over the years, but in your opinion, how do you think umpiring within the Baseball Canada program and Baseball Ontario program helped you get a job in minor professional baseball? You know what? I think anybody, I think Baseball Ontario and Canada hadn't gone to a national championship by that point in time. Right. 
Um, I had my first assignment was going to be a, a band film, our 15U, and I had to cancel out of that because I got the call that I was getting a job. So I hadn't been down there at that point in time. But, you know, in Ontario, we had had a lot of people that had been to an umpire school. And so the people that were leading our program at that point in time had that experience and, and were passing it along to us, right? And if you, you get to work with it, you know, a lot of people think working a lot of games is, is the best way to improve. But I always counter that with if you're working a lot of games, but you're doing things improperly, then you're just creating bad habits versus when you do get the opportunity to work, to work with those people that can teach you. And that, and I was lucky. I had that opportunity and had a lot of great people around me that could teach me. So when I got to umpire school, you know, you have a mix, right? You have a lot of people that are coming to umpire school that have one never umpire before. You know, one year when I taught there, we actually had, for an example, an NBA referee who had lost his job because they're not full-time originally. It takes several years and had lost his job and came to umpire school learning to umpire. Had never umpired a game before, was an NBA referee and came to umpire school. No matter what experience you have, if you've spent some time on the field, you are a step up on that person, right? So not only did I have experience from working with great people who had passed along great information, but a lot of games. So I felt really confident going down there and I think it, it really did help. Oh, I completely agree with you when you say that if you're doing things, just because you're doing it a lot doesn't mean you're doing the right things. And I counter that with, I dated a lot of girls before I met my wife. So my wife might listen to this, so I'm not going to say similar things. Uh, I guarantee you my wife won't. <laughs> I promise you she's not. She listens to me enough. So I, I, I just, I appreciate that she lets me go in the office and do this. So. That, that's actually a great analogy. And I, you're, you're bang on. I think, you know, anyone who is listening to this, right, just because you're doing something often, if you're not seeking some feedback from people you're working with or trying to keep learning and you're just reinforcing bad habits, then those just become harder to break down the road. So never stop learning. Okay, let's stop talking about how you got to minor professional baseball. Let's talk about minor professional baseball. Do you remember that first year? Any jitters, nervousness going down? Yeah, I probably crapped my pants that first game. It was uh, a Gulf Coast League. I can't remember the exact field I was in. It, it was hot. Uh, the Gulf Coast League is terrible. Uh, I don't wish that upon anybody. Uh, humidity in 100 plus degrees. It's unheard of midday games. I want to say it was somewhere. I was out of Lakeland, Florida at the time. And I can't remember. Somewhere in the Tampa area. I know we had the Tampa clear water, but one of those ballparks there. And lucky me, I got evaluated my first game in, in professional baseball. Oh. Awesome. You get evaluated, what, twice a year in the league? Yeah, you get, when you actually get up higher, you get six games a year is generally what it's supposed to be. But of course, because it was late in the season, they had to come see me and it happened that it was my first game I got evaluated. So that's never in anybody's best interest. Uh, anybody listening, don't schedule an evaluation your first game of the year. But uh, yeah, I had a, uh, that's what I remember from that. It being hot and suffering through. Uh, and a lot of long drives there because from Lakeland, we had to go down to Vero at the time where they had one field. It was a three hour drive and that was a full day of work. Three hour drive to the ballpark, get there an hour early, three hours of suffering, three hour drive home. So anybody who thinks umpire is just three hours, you're wrong. And that's back in the day of the wool pants. None of this poly spandex stuff, right? No, no, it was, and it was, it was hot. And those were, those are days when you have the white towel filled with whatever magic potion those trainers put in them that cover your head and you breathe in fumes and you think, 
should I really be doing this? But they're experts and I'm not. So I think it has a bit of a bluish tone too. That's where I remember the Gulf Coast League. That's, uh, now you worked your way up. Now you eventually worked your way up. What other leagues or divisions and calibers did you get the chance uh, to work? Uh, I did two other levels. I did the New York Penn League the next year. Great league, fantastic league. It's a, it was a short season A uh, with the new minor league system in the next couple of years. I, I'm not sure how that's going to work out, but I love that, uh, that league. There were some long drives, but man, they had some fantastic new stadiums at the time. Brooklyn, Cyclones were there um, overlooking Coney Park with Coney Dogs. Staten Island had a beautiful park with the, the New York Yankees farm system there, and they were right on the water. A lot of great stadiums. So I spent a, a season in that league, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, and then the next year, I was in the South Atlantic League, so that would be 2003. I like the South Atlantic League. It was a little bit different. It, it really spanned uh, quite the distance from north to south. Uh, so the way that league worked is you were split into the north and you were split into the south for half a season to, to tour, sort of reduce the travel. Some really great cities, some really dumpy cities. I mean, there was some, you get into your, down in Georgia, Savannah, great cities, but it's like literally straight out of a movie with a dirt infield and it was horrible. And then you had some great stuff like, you know, Charleston, South Carolina. Love that league. It was, uh, it was a great experience for me. It eventually made its way sort of north up to Ohio. So I had the opportunity to see some family I enjoyed that part when every time, you know, whenever family could make their way across and, and watch some games, that's, that's awesome. Uh, and then 2004, I was back in the South Atlantic League. I started the year there, had a couple different partners. Uh, and then I actually quit. I quit halfway through at the All-Star break. I, I called Major League Baseball at the office, Minor League Baseball at the office. And uh, I told them I was packing it in. I was, I was in East Lake, Ohio at the time again. And you could quit anytime you wanted, but they weren't paying for your flight home. So um, <laughs> logistically, logistically, it worked out for me. My parents came down and they got to watch my last series working in you know professional baseball, which was awesome. Loved having them there. I think they had a free haircut giveaway one night. So I remember my dad in the stands getting a free haircut while he was watching me umpire baseball game. But great little stadium. You know, they could hold 10,000 fans. And, oh, wow. you know, minor league, base, minor league baseball is Really, it's truly something special, right? We, we're all used to seeing Major League Baseball, but you know, minor league baseball, those cities, that that team is their life in a lot of those places, right? And it's, what do you do on a Friday night, Saturday night, fireworks, entertainment? You know, you can take a family to an event like that for $40 with your hot dog and pop special and, you know, have a great night. So um, I packed it in. It was uh, middle of 2004 and I, came back and then eventually joined uh, back in with the Baseball Canada program here. Well, you mentioned that this is the lifeblood of some of these cities. I do feel for the changes that are happening now at the minor league baseball based on the major league baseball recommendations because you do read this and you re reading some sad stories of what's going on and I don't really want to put you on the spot, but I just want to say like, I just, we know it's kind of like what hockey is up here. You take away some of these major junior teams, you're, 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 putting nails in the coffin in some of these towns essentially or morale wise at least yeah you know you are and a lot of these I, I really hope a lot of these cities will keep their programs i know they're going to start a lot of college ball like college bait you know wood bat leagues and some other you know leagues that sort of filter in players at that lower level uh, but you know there's something to having uh, a team that's affiliated to a major league team right sure. and, and making those connections and now you're just a team and just another league and 
So I, I do hope. I, I also feel for all the minor league umpires that are currently in the system right now. I haven't heard. I mean, I've asked around to a bunch of people. I know if they have any ideas and nothing's really come out yet. You know, what's going to happen to them? You're, you're cutting out, you know, a third of your leagues. What are you going to do with, with those umpires? You know, are they going to switch from a two-umpire system to a three-umpire system? Or are they just going to not replace them this year? And who knows? A lot of a lot of changes coming in the minor league system. But uh, yeah, it'll work itself out, I hope. Yeah, you're right. And you mentioned the mass hiring of 1999. I think another one is going to be 2020. There was a lot of movement up to Major League Baseball. So it'll be interesting to see how much stagnation there'll be within the minor league ranks over the next couple of years. And, you know, I, I've said that to everybody. It's it's not that I didn't, you know, I didn't enjoy myself living on the road. That was really what it came down to. You know, you're, you're on the road. I, I felt like I missed a lot of stuff. I missed my family. I missed... You know, I miss going to weddings. I, I miss, you know, being a best man. I miss grandmother's death. Those are things that, you know, you know when you get into minor league baseball that you're giving up. And, and I didn't want to make that sacrifice. And truth be told, to me, it was just a reality in terms of the numbers, right? So in 2001 to 2004, when I was in during that spam, there was one job given out at the major league level. And I think if my numbers were right, we were about 230 minor league umpires. So one out of 230, and I just said to myself, it, it's just not worth it, right? I, I could be 30 at that point coming back and, and not have a job and then having to look for a job or 35. And, you know, I thought, well, let's go back and sort of put some roots down and, and see what I could do. And, and like this, look, we're talking about umpiring in Canada right now. We have a great program and uh, you can still umpire and do something that you love and you can be a little more selective about it, right? It's oh, not... question. Every, you know, three weeks in a row with one off day on a Sunday sort of thing. So right. um, you can bring back a little bit of the love of umpiring and not just the job side of it. Oh, no question. And that is one of the beautiful things about the Baseball Canada program is it lets you stay within the umpiring world and do something you enjoy because you enjoy doing it. But since we're talking about it, share with us how many national championships in your work within the Baseball Canada program? I have umpired at five national championships. And uh, I think I've supervised at ooh, five more, maybe, maybe okay. 11, 13, 14, 16, 18. Yeah, five more. Wow. Five more. And then a few T12s and that sort of stuff from the international side since we started that program. So I think in total, 10 nationals. And, you know, I'll be fair, I got to give a lot of credit. And, you know, I, I think we'll ultimately touch more on some of the international stuff later. But, I have to give a lot of credit to Baseball Ontario, right? And, you know, if people listen, I apologize. I cannot for the life of me remember everybody who was on the Baseball Ontario Umpires Committee at that time. Uh, but back in 2006, when I got back into the program, we were under the old 4A, 4B, 5C, 5B, 5A program, if you recall. Yeah. And the only way to become eligible for an international assignment was to become a 5B. So you need to do three major championships. The committee here in Ontario, God love them, they, they gave me three major championships in a row when I got back in, so six, seven, and eight. And uh, that made me eligible. And frankly, that opened up doors because without that, you know, I wouldn't have been in the right place at the right time to meet certain right. people and, and progress, right? Uh, a lot of it is luck. It's being in the right spot at the right time and having put in the hard work when you get to those opportunities. So. I'm going to take you back to your first championship. We might have heard about it on our last episode. guy by the name of Stu Sherwater told us he might have had the gold medal plate in that championship. That's true. That's right. It's good old Stuart, huh? Yeah, he, he didn't want to 
talk about it because he said he didn't really know how to handle it, but potentially uh, a, th- a throwing incident that you had to handle and Stu sat in the corner and cowered on? Funny enough, I have a very good recollection of that incident. I'd love to hear and it. If we ever need to see the VCR, I even have the VCR of that game too. So, you know, maybe down the road we'll have to post that somewhere, but uh, it was. It was, uh, it was the finals. We had an incident in, actually, it wasn't a throwing incident. It was an incident at first base involving the aforementioned Stuart Sherwater, <laughs> where they uh, actually, we had, it was a 5 nothing game. This is one of the few games that I really have a good recollection of, and I'm not giving Stu any credit for that. We always but, remember everyone else's faults. That's how it happens. You know, it was it was a five nothing game that they blew a lead. It was Quebec, and it was it was the home team. It was okay. we in Guelph. It was Guelph and Quebec, and uh, they blew a five nothing lead. It was five five, and for some reason we were in extra innings, and they continually were throwing over to first base. They had a runner on first. They were continually throwing over, and the guy was laying down pretty yeah. solid tags on the guys. Yeah, hard tags, and I mean he was starting to smoke them. And so the kid eventually just had enough and he got up and he shoved the first baseman. And so the first baseman shoved him back. And then before you know it, you got big old Stu Sherwater, six foot four muscles like this. This is one of our famous post-show edits. Unfortunately, you were unable to see the description or size of the muscle that Trevor was describing of Stu Sherwater, but it was somewhere between a pool noodle and an oil drum. Now back to the show headed in the middle of them, trying to separate them. And you got me, uh, I think I had a beard at that point. I'd given up on my appearance, but uh, <laughs> running down the first baseline to uh, to help out. And I recall a lot of yelling at benches to get back. And uh, thankfully we had a, a Quebec umpire in the middle of the infield there, Martin Gravel. And uh, Martin Gravel was able to uh, speak a little French and help us with the Quebec bench. And so, uh, no throwing incidents, but uh, some pretty hard tags and some solid umpiring by the first base umpire, I have to say. I love it. That is almost a textbook story or incident that happens at a lot of 21U championships. Yeah, that was uh, that was a, a really good championship. And uh, again, you mentioned earlier, one of our supervisors at that event was Dale Legro. Dale, we actually had three Ontario supervisors that one. Dale Legro, Ben Mercier, and, uh, you know, God love him, Dave Lavarado was yes. the third one there, so... It, uh, it was a really good championship. Great, great city there, Guelph. I, I mean, I'm partial since I went to school there. But uh, you want to send me back there for National Amen. Where are some of the other championships you've been to? You know what? I don't think I actually had any other ones in Ontario. The next year was Seniors in Quebec, which was the multi-site location. You know, that one was a bit of an, a weird one for us in the sense that because the week we were umpiring was the same as Canada Cup. Uh, we had a, a couple incidents and lost an umpire or two, and, and the schedules got all mixed up. So we ended up amalgamating our our crews over that weekend for some of the games. I had a great crew, the uh, David Cass and Brian Carnelli crew. Oh, wow. Yep. But, uh, what I do remember is Brian Carnelli is a snorer. And uh, <laughs> I have a lot of snore, a lot of stories about snoring. I, I cannot have a roommate that snores. Uh, unless I am the first to fall asleep, I am in some deep crap. And Brian was a snorer. So I spent many a nights, I, I specifically recall sleeping in the common room in the dormitory <laughs> there just to try to get some sleep. It, it was an adventure. The other story I remember there, and I always get blamed by for Chris Wilhelm for this, was uh, I went out one day, the pillows were awful, and I, 
I went out and bought a pillow at a local store and I tried to give Chris Wilhelm directions on, as to how to get to that same store. And well, you know, he might not be the sharpest tool in the shed, Chris Wilhelm. <laughs> and uh, he ended up getting onto the wrong bus and missed his exit and ended up on the other side of the city and almost missed the game. And somehow that became my fault. So, uh, you know, that's one story I definitely remember from there, Mr. Wilhelm. If you listen, this is your own fault. You couldn't get off the bus in time. So uh, after that, I ended up in Brandon the next year, seniors out in Brandon. The thing I take away from that one, not umpire related, but that is the tournament where I learned that you could push in the lid on your Tim Hortons cup inwards instead of lifting it upwards. And I have never gone back since 2008. I have always pushed my lid inwards on any coffee cup. And that didn't come from any of the, the supervisors or anybody that was there or any of the umpires. That came from one of our fantastic volunteers who picked us up at the airport. And on the drive, I'm sitting next to him in the, in the shotgun seat and I look over and he pushes the lid in and I thought, what are you doing? Are you crazy? And he looked at me and he said, it's just like drinking from a mug. And I tried it and he was damn well correct. It's just like drinking from a mug. None of this splashback on the upper lip. I have never gone back. So if I take anything out of that championship, it was my Tim Hortons lip cup. <laughs> it's amazing the things you learn when you get to explore the world, isn't it? Yeah, that's uh, that was it. I guess after that was Charlottetown. Great city, Charlottetown, oh, PA. Fantastic little city. That was Canada Games the next year. And in retrospect, I wish I could have got to some more events, uh, being one of those multi-sport events. But the schedule just was was a tough schedule for all of us there. To It was a fair ways to get to the ballpark in that one. Another great crew uh, looking back uh, on that one there and enjoyed my time there. That was a, a good championship. And then my last one was 2015 in good old Miramichi. Oh, yes. Love it. Hometown. Miramichi 2015. And, um, round of applause. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, that was one of my favorite championships. It was Man, those people turned out, uh, you know, by the probably a couple thousand for the, that last game there. And any time that the home team from Chatham was playing, it was uh, it was a solid crowd. Great little stadium, great little field to it. And uh, our hotel was fantastic. We were literally right on the river there. Uh, what was it? The Rod Hotel there. The yes. Rod on the Miramichi just near Water Street. Yes, yes. And, um, yeah, I love that one. We found a little great restaurant um, on Water Street. It was an old pub, an Irish pub. O'Donoghue's. O'Donoghue's, yes. <laughs> great little backyard. And, uh, you know, we loved that one. You know, that one there, I had uh, I had, a, I had a fellow, what, did you, what would you say, Saskatchewanian? What would be the right term be? Uh, I'd say he's a Saskatonian. A, a Saskatonian? Scott Mills? Yeah. He's a, yeah, Saskatchewanian. Yeah. Once you move out here, you get the language down, but a Saskatonian. A Saskatonian. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a great championship there. It was uh, Scott Mills and, again, God love him, Andy Harrington. Yes. Um, it was our crew for, for that championship, and uh, we actually had a protest. We had a game with a protest there. And uh, What was, was it? How was the protest? It was, uh, that was the first year that a new rule came into place for a block where um, the rules apply to third base the same they did yes. at first. So if a fielder wasn't on, on the base or within reach of the base, 
So we had one of those plays where it was uh, they threw to the fielder at third who was 15 feet off the, the base trying and then trying to throw back across. And I called the block from the infield and heaven for, you know, heaven forbid uh, I was wrong for sure. They all told me. And uh, I remember going up to the fence and Ray Merkley was our supervisor. And I can't remember who the baseball Canada rep was. And, and they called me over and asked what we had. And I told them and I guaranteed them that the rule was right. And, it was the first year of the new rule, so it took a little looking. I'm not sure if they actually found the rule or they just took my word for it, but uh, money in hand and protest was uh, denied, and we went back at it. So that was uh, that was great. That was a second field in the middle of nowhere. Uh, right along the water there, they had uh, sort of put some new lights into a field there, but uh, that was great. And, you know, Chatham Head. Yeah, one of, the, you know, one of the great things about umpiring, you know, for me has always been the travel. And I, I loved that one. My wife came out and, and watched the last Monday, the games there. And then we ended up taking a road trip for eight days through New Brunswick and, and crossed over and did all of PEI and ended up back in, in New Brunswick at the, the Bay of Fundy there and uh, made the most out of a, another trip there. So uh, I think it's only fair that we say who the baseball Canada rep, I think in 2015, was it Kelsey McIntosh? Oh, Kelsey McIntosh. I hope not. <laughs> Oh, I got to call him back. He called me a little while ago and I, uh, I think I was supposed to return a call to him or maybe he didn't email me, but, uh, God, Kelsey was great. Kelsey, yes. uh, a lot of credit given to Kelsey. He was a huge ambassador of our baseball Canada program. He took the and, words out of my mouth. I was just about to say, you know, the amount of work that he did in terms of getting us online in our online evaluation system. And if you needed something from Kelsey, he would do anything for us. He really was one of us. That was that was a, a great championship, and I think I, I ended up back out in New Brunswick. I might offend you, but out in Fredericton the next year supervising, and uh, there might be some interprovincial rivalry there. But uh, you've gone from that, one superpower to another, I tell you. You know uh, that was a great trip, and I, I people hated me for that. Ed Quinlan hated me after that one, and, and because. They had actually rented me as the lead supervisor, my own Ford Edge for the entire week. Oh, nice. And they had a sign created that was on the side of the Ford Edge that was like a magnetic sign that had my name that said supervisor of umpires. <laughs> and I took so many selfies of myself beside that. And I just kept sending them back to each of them. And I think they're getting very irritated. And I actually kept it and brought that home with me in case they ever needed to pull that back out on the side of the car. But, uh, it was slightly embarrassing with it, but you know what? Hey, got me great parking spots. And if I could rub it into to some people like Ed's face, it was awesome. <laughs> he was jealous. Well, you talk about minor league professional baseball and having some of these teams as part of the community. If there's one thing I can attest about baseball in Atlanta, Canada, being a former resident is that, and right across the country, these cities and towns, they take a lot of pride in putting on these championships. They roll out the red carpet and, a lot of these places find these little things like this that you we're talking about years later, and it really does leave a lasting impact in a positive note of the community. Yeah, I can, every championship. I think, you know, to your point there, the only one that really never had that feel was that multi-site one in 2007. Just got right too big. The, it was too big, and, and there wasn't that small, intimate feel. And it doesn't matter what level you're at, you know, whether you're out in Alberta, you know, all these different places, they hosted a Canada Cup a couple years ago, I think it was, but all these different communities, they just rally around that. And there's so much community support 
Uh, and generally speaking, they love us, right? And you always end up with a local umpire who is assigned to the umpires, right? That's just yes. the way it works, right? Yes. And, and that's your go-to person who, if you need a lift somewhere, if you need to know where the best spot to go is, if you, you know, anything, they would do anything they can to help you to make that event for you because they appreciate where we're coming from, right? Most people aren't there to watch us. And, you know, we don't want to be seen. We're just doing our job. Uh, but again, they're, they're there for support and, and they make our championships for us. So shout out to all those little communities that really do top-notch jobs for all of our championships. No question. Now, one of the things, as you mentioned, you get to go to championships and then eventually get your check marks to international work. Let's move on to that. What has been your international pathway? Where was your first championship? Uh, my first would have been 2010 at the World Youth Thunder Bay, Ontario. And, you know, this is what I spoke to you about earlier there, about all the sort of stars aligning and, you know, just being at the right spot at the right time and, and you know, gratefully giving credit to the people that put me there. But that was my first international event. There was six of us from Canada. We had a great crew, uh, David Cass, Chris Wilhelm, Trevor Drury, Jamie Killingsworth, the blog man himself, uh, and Andrew Downs. <laughs> And, uh, you know, we had a great event there. Corey Davis was a supervisor. So we had seven of us representing Canada there. Uh, another great tournament. That was my entry into the system. And, and Gus Rodriguez had just taken over as the head of umpires for, I think they were still IBAF at the time. Uh, he had taken over from Dick Runchy and, and was there and uh, had the opportunity to see me and watch me work. And really, frankly, that opened the door to to some future opportunities, you know, in, in the years coming after. So that was 2010. And then that opened door starting in 2011 and, and moving forward. Since you bring it up, what do you mean the blog man? Jamie Killingsworth won't be very happy with me. I got to be honest. Oh, I love Jamie. Jamie is, is a great guy. And Jamie was really proud of the fact that he was there. And so he should have been. And he started a blog. And this is well before the days of social media. He, anything about blogs either he was there and he started a blog jk thunder bay i think it was called and it was great it was an older hotel in thunder bay and we each had our own rooms and he went out he didn't want to watch what we were watching one night i can't remember what he wanted to watch but he wanted to go watch tv in another room so we gave him keys to a different room and we stayed in his room watching whatever it was and we realized, I realized, along with Chris Wilhelm, but I think I have to take more responsibility here, um, that JK Thunder Bay was left open on his computer screen. And so uh, we hacked it, of course, like any good colleague or friend would do under the circumstances. And so we adjusted JK Thunder Bay's uh, post for the day. And we referenced a lot of things. I, I think if I recall correctly, we also mentioned Chris Wilhelm's tidy whities um, <laughs> and some different things. And then I was smart enough to realize that he probably wouldn't check that night. But what I did was I unhooked the internet line to his room. And, but just enough that you couldn't tell it was unhooked. So all night, he just thought he didn't have internet. He didn't know what was going on. And of course, the next day, he starts getting all these messages and realizes he'd been hacked. And he was fuming. He wouldn't talk to me at breakfast the next day. He was so irate. He posted about how the fact that he was you know, he, that he got hacked and it was my fault and Chris's fault. And um, he was upset because a lot of his colleagues, he, he taught at University of Guelph there. And a lot of his colleagues and his family had been following his blog and 
But we all had a good laugh. And I think anybody who would have read it knew that it wasn't Jamie speaking on that. And probably in retrospect, he probably has had a few good laughs about it. But at the time, he was he was pretty upset. So uh, we hacked J.K. Thunder Bay. <laughs> and that was a highlight of that, that tournament for sure. Now, I know you can't remember the show, but do you think Jamie was a madman at that time? Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> that, would, that would be a good analogy, probably. <laughs> oh, another, another great guy willing to do anything and, uh, you know, really has contributed to, to umpiring in Guelph in that area in our, own, in our own province as well, too. So I'm not sorry I did it. I thought it was hilarious at the time. And uh, if we can't look back and laugh now, then what can we do? So I think it's hilarious in 2021. So <laughs> definitely worth it. The, the irony of it is, you know, I didn't even know what a blog was probably that time. And then a few, a few years later, here I am starting my own blogs. And, you know, now I've put them all into books as good memories. So he was, he was, he was at the forefront of the blogging. Pioneer. Let's move on from 2010. What was the next championship you attended? 2011, uh, got a call along with Rob Allen. We went to California. They invited us to a sort of a, a mini camp for potential selections um, to the World Baseball Classic. And we flew down there and had the opportunity to learn from, you know, some great umpires, Ted Barrett, Larry Young, did a few games for them, did some college games. And so that made us eligible for, for the WBC. And then I actually had a call from uh, Larry for the 2012 World Baseball Classic qualifier in Jupiter, Florida. So that's where that started, September of 2012. And that was the the first qualifying tournament that they had um, for one team. So the way it worked at that point was three three teams were assigned based on the 2009 qualify, I mean, classic. And then they did a qualifying tournament in four different sites for one more team into each of the pools. Um, had that opportunity there that was, uh, had a really fun time there. That was at the point in time, they only used AAA umpires. So similar to the classic, we had three AAA guys that were working that and then three international umpires. And so I think back, um, you know, the three AAA guys at that point, Quinn Wolcott, Chris Siegel, and Sean Barber, two of them are, two of them are, are full-time hires and God, Sean definitely deserves it. He's one of the best umpires out there, I think. And, you know, he's now got five, 600 games under his belt. So, you know, knock on wood, I, I hope he gets that call sooner than later and, uh, and, and ultimately joins that full-time staff as well. So great group of guys. And then from there, I got the call probably right at the start of January of 2013 from Larry saying I've been selected uh, to go on. And again, this is another one of those situations where the stars aligned for Trevor Grieve. I'm thankful that that has happened on a few times, but, you know, I, I was originally scheduled that tournament to, to only work round one in Puerto Rico. Okay. And, and it turned out that um, the Puerto Rican professional league, the umpires were striking and they weren't sure that they were going to rectify their, their situation in time before the classic. And as a result, Larry didn't want to take any chances. So my assignment actually got switched uh, a couple of weeks before I was scheduled to leave. So instead of going to Puerto Rico for round one, I ended up getting assigned to go to Taiwan for round one <laughs> and then round two in Tokyo. Okay. So my, my Puerto Rico turned into a, you know, a 20 day trip to Asia at that point in time. And so honestly, it's, it's the stars aligning. It was a fantastic opportunity for me. And 
And then I got lucky there because at the WBC from the international umpire side, the, the major league umpires at that point all applied to go to the classic. Okay. So they put in their, their, whatever they wanted to be considered for where they wanted to travel to. And so they were selected for that. Uh, the international guys were all obviously chosen by Larry Young, who was coordinating that for Major League Baseball. In international, they didn't want an amateur. And, and I say amateur, but like in reality, the Japanese umpires in that tournament were Japanese professional umpires. Right. You know, they're working 100 games a year in their professional league. The Korean professional umpires, these are all professional umpires. So I don't say, I should say international instead of amateur because a few of us were amateur umpires. Uh, but the others were international. Okay. And as part, of, as part of that, they didn't want international umpires to umpire their own team. So yep. Japan, as you know, has a very strong team. They've probably been in the, the semifinals for the last several years of that tournament. And of course, they made it through again. So the way it ended up working was I went from Tokyo. I got called while I was in Tokyo by Larry asking me to go on to Phoenix so I went from there to Phoenix where spring training was happening because of the, the time difference between the two venues. Uh, the North American sites were in Central America were behind a couple of days. Okay. So I flew there with a, a Puerto Rican umpire, Carlos Ray. Okay. Yep. And, and so they ended up having us work a couple of spring training games in Phoenix, Arizona while we were there just to keep working. Cause those teams needed some games to keep playing. Right. And so we worked those two and until they determined who was going to be coming from the other pool. So then as it turned out that year, Puerto Rico qualified by process of elimination, Carlos Ray therefore was no longer able to go. And so I slotted into the finals with the other umpires that were already assigned to go. So we had a Puerto Rican strike followed by Japan qualifying, qualified by, you know, followed by Puerto Rico qualifying, which resulted in, the Canadian umpire being in San Francisco for the finals. So I got lucky. I don't know what else to tell you. It, uh, yep. that was my path for that, that championship. And, uh, that was, uh, <laughs> that was a, a great experience. That was, uh, I blogged it and I know a lot of people did follow that, but that was basically a month off. I took a month off work, uh, used all my holidays for the year and, uh, went from Taiwan to Tokyo to Phoenix to San Fran to home. So that was, uh, that was March of March, end of February. That was basically all my March of 2013. Right. And great guys, great crews, great guys. I mean, you look at, you look at the finals crew that year. I mean, the late Wally Bell, Ted Barrett and Bill Miller, who was the, what the 2020 crew chief of the world series. Like those are names yeah. that kind of stand in infamy, if you could say. And you say that, but I, I think back to that, that every crew considering it was, you know, optional elective for, from their side but, you know i started in taiwan had paul emel greg gibson and lance barksdale oh yeah uh, my next crew in tokyo was jerry davis alfonso marquez and chris guccion oh geez and that the three you've listed so of the nine guys i i mean we're not even talking new rookie umpires in the no. major leagues no. like those guys are all you know seasoned veterans at that point and uh they were all great to be around. Uh, very different dynamics at, at each of the different venues. Uh, round one was Taiwan, and and those guys all came by themselves. They didn't bring any partners or spouses or anything. Okay. So we had a lot more time to be social, a lot of uh, nights drinking up on the roof. We had a Cuban umpire who brought 
50 boxes of uh, a box of 50 cigars. And <laughs> I would say money to shine, but he called it something else from Cuba. It, uh, one too many headaches the next morning overlooking the city of Taiwan you know, on a rooftop bar, which was unbelievable. Uh, but then the next round, you know, both Chris Guccione and Alfonso and Jerry actually all had their wives there. So a very different dynamic. Uh, they had brought their wives because those umpires had actually worked round one also in Japan. Okay. So because they were going to be there for 14 days, they brought their their wives with them. But just a different dynamic in terms of, you know, what you're doing or going out. Still had some nights karaokeing and, uh, <laughs> you know, I actually uh, developed a great relationship from that tournament with Buck Martinez. Oh, wow. Uh, he, was, he was there doing the broadcast for MLB Network. And uh, knowing that I was a Canadian umpire actually made his way down to the dressing room to, to meet me and introduce himself. Uh, one of the first nights we were there. And then instead of sitting in my hotel room, any night I wasn't umpiring, I'd, I'd use my pass to get into the Tokyo dome. And, you know, at one point there got invited up into the booth and was able to watch them while they were broadcasting and, and see how that worked from their perspective and, and just walk the whole Tokyo dome. It's uh Asian baseball is its own, its own world. Yes. You, you know, North America is great. And, and some of these cities, you know, I think back to the days when you watched, you know, the Atlanta Braves with the Tomahawk chop, you know, that was the yeah. big thing they were doing and, and all in unison. Uh, but in Asia, it's nine innings of that. It is nine innings of singing and dancing and waves, you know, followed by people with whistles when the foul ball goes off. And warnings in between innings about if there's an earthquake, stay in the Tokyo Dome, you're safe there. Uh, and you could literally feel the floor bouncing. Uh, I enjoyed just walking around. And day one, I was on the field and I was sort of listening to it all. And I couldn't figure out how they all know these songs. But I finally realized when they come in, they hand them out an eight and a half by 11 cheat sheet. No way. And on the cheat sheet, they have the lineup of everyone's names and all of the songs for each one of them. No so all, yeah so all the lyrics are listed on this little cheat sheet and you know i took a picture of it to show everybody at home and and usually it starts out in the right field you know bullpen area above there the, the bleachers and they started with the trombones and the trumpets and then the whole stadium just cheerleaders and it's it's it is something else Sounds like quite the experience. Now, you spend a couple weeks in Asia and you come back to North America. Now, I'm trying to do some fact-checking and I'm having difficulty. Can you jog my memory? Is it true that you worked in a Major League Baseball park before Stu Shearwater ever did? <laughs> I guess technically. Wait. Hell yeah. That's right. <laughs> that's right. I hope he listens to this at some point. Uh, I, I can't claim very much over that guy, that's for sure. Uh, it's impressive what he's done to get to where he is. And... Uh, it's building quite the resume for him. I'm very proud of him. But you're right. I would have been on the field at uh, in San Francisco there uh, in 2013. And I think his major league debut was 2014. I think so. so yeah, I know so. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yep. I, don't, I can't hold much over top of that guy. But uh, I guess I can say I was on a field first. And I don't think he even would have had a breakout game before that yet. I don't think he would have started his Montreal breakout games yet. So I think that is an accurate statement. And if it's not, I'm going to hear about it as soon as you post this uh, at some point and he has the opportunity to listen. So I'll take it. 
Well, we'll have to be careful because he could be listening to it with some of the guys that you've mentioned. So they might come back and use it against you too about those nights in the rooftop. No, no, no bad, no bad nights. You know, I had great experience with those guys. Um, you know, they were, they were all up for, for everything, right? It's, uh, you know, I can remember walking through you know, Taiwan. I was in Taichung, which is very westernized. It's crazy what's there. And it was beautiful. But, you know, one day I was out going for a coffee uh, with Greg Gibson. He wanted to buy a pair of shoes for his wife. And let's just say that I don't shop at the same price point that Greg Gibson was shopping for those shoes. Fair enough. But uh, we walk the shoes and we leave this mall. And it, it's, like a, it's like a skyscraper, the mall. They go up. So it had like 13 floors going up. It's like an apartment building near malls and you just go up and up and up. But when we ended up coming down, um, we walk out front and there's no really better way to put it, but there's like a jazzercise class going on right out front of the mall. And he didn't think I would, but sure enough, I jumped at the back of the line. And before you know it, I am at the back, I'm dancing, I'm kicking my legs in unison with these ladies doing their jazzercise. They're looking at me like, who is this tall six foot one white Caucasian male at the back? Like what's going on? And you got getting this odd little smirk, like he, he, he. And hey, you know what? They were up for anything. Those guys, uh, we had a, we had a great time, did some sightseeing, good experience with Lance one day and, uh, and Larry, we got out of the town and had a great guide that took us and we're up doing these cantilever things and this, these buckets, you know, 300 feet above the ground looking over, you know, half moon lakes and stuff. And uh, so they were, they were great. And, you know, the other one, the next round was more about um, with those guys in Tokyo, more like dinners with the, with them, but you know, the odd karaoke night, we did that for sure. And, and we get out. And, and then the last round, unfortunately, I didn't, uh, I didn't get to spend much time with uh, those guys you mentioned, you know, uh, I have a great memory of Wally Bell, the, we were there and one of the nights he, he has a local hole in the wall bar in San Francisco that, you know, clearly he knew there was a stool in the corner that was his. So I'm telling you, I know he was there fairly often, you know, he's known by name. He sits at the end of the bar, everyone's moving, but he's got a stool. But the funny part about that was, you know, we we're talking about how we were going to get there. And he's like, give me a sec, I'll be back. So we wait out front of their hotel because they stayed in a different hotel than we did. They could choose where they wanted to stay. Okay. And most major league guys are Hyatt guys because they can collect points. Oh, yes. And so they're at a Hyatt and we're at a, another nice swanky downtown hotel. And all of a sudden he comes in and a stretch limousine pulls up. <laughs> and in is Wally Bell. He's hired a stretch limousine. We've got the blue lights on. We've got the purple lights, the green lights. Paul Hyams, the Australian umpire, he's working with me as his wife Vanessa is there. And before you know it, we're in the back of this stretch limo taking us to a hole-in-the-wall bar in the middle of San Francisco. Like, just like one of those moments where you're like, where am I right now? Like, what am I doing? Yeah. And uh, a great memory of, of Wally Belder. That was, uh, I, I enjoyed that. And, you know, that was, that was really my first trip where I realized I, I, an appreciation for traveling. And I say that to you and anyone listening that, you know, if you're at a national championship or anywhere, get out there, see the city you're in, right? Don't sit in your hotel room, grab your crew, get out there. There's got to be somewhere to go in the day if you have a day off, um, whether that's floating up a river in Miramichi or, you know, in downtown Saskatoon, where I was there for a Canada Cup. Um, great little spots, get out there. And, and, and I really regretted not doing a lot of that when I was in minor league baseball, right? Because it was a job. Right. It was 
you're in a great city. You're in Augusta, Georgia. Beautiful. You know, I ended up, I actually had a partner in Augusta, Georgia, who was in charge of all the volunteers for the Masters Championship. Oh, wow. And I lost his contact. That's my one regret. My one regret from, from minor league baseball. Uh, my partner went down and he was my partner for eight days. I worked eight plates in a row. I ended up with a caddy hat and I have all kinds of memorabilia from the master's course itself, but I lost his contact info, but uh, get out and enjoy these cities. But in minor league baseball, that was my, my job. Right. And I think if you talk to anybody, Aaron Roberts or even Stu, when he was in the minor leagues, it's, it's a grind. It's a, uh, it, it was a routine. You know, I, I rotated through three different meals for literally for the entire season. I probably rotated through Pizza Hut buffet, followed by Chinese buffet, followed by the grocery store for sandwiches. And that was our whole year. Oh, wow. Because at $19 a day per deal, you're not eating a lot of food, right? So if you can get a buffet, um, the only thing I would really try to worry about is that Sunday day game plate. Right, because if you had Chinese the day before, your body gets into a bit of a rhythm, if you know what I mean. Yep. Uh, you know, and then all of a sudden, you've got the profuse sweats in the afternoon on a Sunday. Uh, you might be popping a couple of pills to help relieve some stuff. Uh, I, I did have to leave a game once for that, so that all fess up to it. You know, I, I said to them, "Listen, guys, I gotta go. I'll be back five minutes." Keep your picture. I pulled the manager aside. I said, listen, I got to run up the, the alley. I'm dying here. Keep your picture in the dugout. You know, I'll come back out. Do you think he kept his picture in the dugout? No. Nope. I come back out down the tunnel thinking they're waiting for me, and they're all standing out on the field staring at me. I was like, you son of a gun. You, you know, I asked one thing the one time. Anyways, I digress. I, I get sidetracked here, but... Um, <laughs> Well, we weren't looking for the dirt on you, but since uh, you, you know, voluntarily offer it. It's it's the benefit of the twofold. It's the, ben, the benefit I quickly learned at the World Baseball Classic is those major league guys, for anybody who doesn't know, and Stu might not fess up to it, they go to the bathroom once a game. So if you're ever out there in a minor league field or stadium somewhere and you're too embarrassed to leave, don't be. Go to the bathroom. Oh, yeah. Make the run, hop the fence, do whatever you got to do. Those guys go every single game. They're just lucky enough to have a bathroom right inside the dugout. Oh, no question. Major League Baseball doesn't really mind to run another 30-second ad. Well, yeah, you know, the best is international baseball because in international baseball in Asia, they have a five-minute break after the fifth inning. The smoke break, they call it. (laughs) That's what it's for. It's for all of the spectators because they can't smoke. They have to go to smoking rooms. They have the five-minute break after the fifth. It's just a built-in break for any umpire to run down, take a quick pee, ready to go for the next two hours of four innings of baseball because international baseball is a slow game. It is a slow baseball game. I wonder Aaron Roberts can help hold out so long. He gets a break in between. I believe it. God, you got to have a bladder of a champ, I'm telling you. Not a gerbil. Let's get ourselves out of the bathroom here and let's talk about 2015. You go to Premier 12. Is this the first time that the WBSC hosts this championship? Yeah, Premier 12 was the first time they they started their own event to go. WBSC started its own event. Started to compete, I think, in, in the off every second year. So alternating with the World Baseball Classic. I think they started it not knowing the future of what the World Baseball Classic was going to be because obviously there's a lot of moving parts to that. You need Major League Baseball Japanese professional baseball, the NPB, 
and major league umpires all have to jump on board with the, with the you know the World Baseball Classic. So WBSC started the Premier 12 again, sort of feeding into the huge Asian market that they have. Uh, and what it was was the top 12 teams in the world rankings as of I don't know when the cutoff date was for it, but they started a tournament. So uh, I was lucky enough again to put some air miles on towards Asia. And uh, I ended up getting out to, uh, with that one, there's no major league guys, but they have a, we had a couple former AAA umpires who had, uh, you know, worked in spring training, major league spring training, who had advanced through the ranks in WBSC through the U.S. program. Uh, Kevin Sweeney, Mark Winters, uh, Marcus Patillo, you know, Marcus had filled in in the big leagues, you know, was a, a filled-in guy and the other guys had, had worked AAA. Uh, so I had an opportunity to get to know them. Great guys, still keep in touch with all of them. Two of them are actually going to be assigned to the Olympics as well. Oh, wow. And, uh, so that was a great trip. We uh, I got lucky enough to uh, actually work the opening night of that one in Sapporo, Japan. So uh, I flew to Sapporo, which was freezing. Thank God they have a dome. It was November for that tournament. It's a late tournament. So it's winter there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was cold. Sapporo was a great little city. It was there just for a couple nights and then actually hopped on a plane. It was supposed to go to Taiwan. I went to Taiwan. I can't remember the city I was going to, but something happened. I ended up getting changed. I ended up in Taichung, where I had been for the the World Baseball Classic. So back to the same city, different hotel. So uh, I worked uh, that first round there. And uh, they don't give out the assignments to the finals until sort of closer to and then found out that I was going to go on to the semifinal round and final round in uh, back in Tokyo. So Sapporo to Taichung, back to Tokyo. That, that was a great trip. Loved it. Great guys. A, a lot more of an international flair because they were all international umpires. That one was, I remember I had to actually work a Team Canada game the first game because of the way the schedule worked out and switched around, which is not very often in, in international baseball that you work your own country. But uh I worked first uh, first base, I think it was, maybe. Okay. First or third, I can't remember the exact base, but then I didn't have to deal with them uh, moving forward for any of their games, thankfully. Thoroughly enjoyed that uh, that trip there. That was uh, a good, that was my first venture into a major WBSC event. And, and they did a great job, you know, they, they're continuing to promote it. Aaron Roberts was just at it, so was Andrew Higgins. You know, 2019, both of them participated in that, which is, fantastic for Canada and, and we're getting more opportunities at these events. I think that's just a test to the baseball Canada program and the hard work that people, the umpires are putting in, but also the program people behind the scenes. Absolutely. You know, and again, Gus took over in 2010, but you know, he was at the Pan Am games in 2015, watched our guys. Um, they've actually really, you know, started to expand their, their championship program right so they now host an under 15 which unfortunately we don't send an umpire to in canada yet uh an under 18 a u23 and now obviously the premier 12 right and and then we also have the women's world cup where you know lisa turbot's been and then we recently sent stephen gomes to and those are just more opportunities for people in our program right you get your foot in the door right and, and i hate to say it i hope anybody who listens to this and I'm preaching from Baseball Canada here, but if we as a program offer somebody the opportunity to attend, you know, a Women's World Cup, don't ever think that that's a second-class event. Never. And, you know, that was the perception that a lot of people had years ago 
And it wasn't a World Cup, but it, but it was, we had events and we wanted to send men umpires. Shame on those umpires that might have turned down those assignments, right? That is top-notch baseball, and it's a foot in the door if you have aspirations to do other stuff too, right? Great baseball. Those women play great baseball. The top four or five countries in the world are fantastic. So yeah, it, don't, it's baseball. Uh, don't turn it down. I'm preaching to people here, putting on my international subcommittee hat for Baseball Canada, but uh, every opportunity you get is an opportunity, right? So make the best of them. Oh, no question. And you mentioned that Canada does not send an umpire to the 15U, but I think we have to put a plug out there. Canada was going to be sending a supervisor to that championship this year with Lisa Turbot herself. So, you know what? We're, it's good to see that people are are stepping up. And I, I shouldn't even say like, like Lisa's stepping up, but they're taking those opportunities because, let's be honest, this is taking away from their day-to-day job. They have to find, you've said you took a, week, a month off from your real job. Like people are sacrificing their holiday time for these opportunities to expand our program. I mean, there's some personal gratification in there, of course, but at the end of the day, looking back on it, it's helping our program. Yeah. It's, you know, Lisa's an ambassador for our program, right? I mean, she's obviously been recognized for a lot of the work she's done. Uh, WBSC has recognized that she sits on their commission. So there's a lot of, you know, influence she has in, you know, helping to develop that program for them and opening some more doors for women, which is always a great thing as well. You know, but you're right. It's a commitment and, and we we all give up sacrifices for those, but take those opportunities and hopefully we will get more. Really, I you know, like you said, our program is growing. Our program is strong. Uh, I know that's always been a goal of mine going to a championship, right, is, you know, I'm representing Canada there. And to me, success is, you know, if I have a great tournament, maybe that means next time around we get two more Canadian umpires. Yeah. Right. You're always fighting the politics that come with all these different associations and federations that want to send more. And, and, you know, there's obviously big finances involved in some of these major championships and equal representation. It used to be you needed to send a team. And really, Gus Rodriguez has gotten away from that. He really wants to just an umpire is an umpire and, you know, create opportunities. And sometimes that means going to a U15 for your first championship. Right. And, and then getting your foot in the door there and then going to the next one. Uh, and that's one of the downfalls, I think, that the U.S. umpires have to get their foot in the door. They do it the same way, attending a WBSC clinic. But the problem they have is that their college program, which is so big and so lucrative for them to take off a week of work or some of those umpires down there, their job is umpire. So, you know, you have a 13 week season. Yep. And they're making $3,000 US plus flights. So you do that, you're making $40,000 in three to four months of baseball. That's a lot of money, right? That's a lot of money depending on what your own personal situations are. So then when you find out you could go to country X, but you're going to get a $50 a day per diem. Right. And then they have to balance out, you know, do I really want to go do that? But any of those other guys I mentioned earlier, Kevin Sweeney, Mark Winters, those guys all started at the bottom. Great guys, AAA umpires, put their foot in the door, did that U18, did that U21, took those assignments that people didn't want, gave up the $3,000 for a weekend in a ACC tournament, you know, ACC yep. league and got that. So to anybody who listens who is from there, they're always looking. I know that Gus is looking every time, you know, I've spoken to him or been at a clinic. I taught one with him in San Jose in, in 2019, the, the same thing, right? They're looking for umpires, but they got to make a sacrifice. You can't just jump in and go right to a premier 12. There's a thing right. I like to say when you apply for a job and you put the references down, a reference never gets you a job, but it can quickly eliminate you. 
And if you say no to an opportunity, that can quickly eliminate you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And not just for that year. That's basically you're closing the door on yourself. Yeah, we all have legitimate reasons. But if you don't, no shouldn't be in your vocabulary. Not if you want to get these opportunities and not even opportunities. It, you know, Philip, it might not be about progressing higher. You know, for it might just be you're going to go to a U15 international event. But guess what? You're going to go to a U15 in a cool country, see baseball from a different perspective. You're going to take advantage of the days off that you have. You're going to meet great people, uh, see a little bit of culture. If you sit in your hotel room, that's on you. You're losing out on those opportunities, right? So Right. And if you go to a 15U, maybe you can come here on the leading edge and share your story. You never know, right? Absolutely. And it's always a story to share another day. So it's life experience. It's fantastic. You know it. Now I'm going to go right back to the World Baseball Classic because I just want to ask, you got a call again a couple years later. What was it like going back a second time? How did you prepare differently? Or how do you prepare to go to these international championships? You know, the sad truth of it is you can't prepare. The preparation, and that's, I have to be honest, right? The, and anybody knows in Canada, our baseball season, at least for us in Ontario, may be different out in BC with warmer climate, but our baseball season really goes from May to September, right? And then you get into a, a brief college five, six week season here that could end in mid-October. Right. But the World Baseball Classics are in March. <laughs> so, you know, th there's no time to prepare, right? You know, you could go to a, a cage and, and look at some pitches, but the nice part about the World Baseball Classic is that as an international guy, you don't have to worry about working home plate. Right. Right. I, I worked home plate in a qualifier and, and there have been a few international guys that have worked the plate in events because there's usually a double header. Okay. And so the major league guys can't work with their collective agreement. They can't work back to back days or they need to, they have a day off or however it works in the schedule. If there was a double header, potentially an international guy could work home plate. Okay. I worked home plate in, in a qualifier. It was a marathon. It was a rain delay. Uh, we ended up coming back the following day. I think from start to end, it was 21 hours from when I first started that game until it finished. <laughs> but uh, the nice part with WBC, like I said, is you're a base umpire. Really, that's sort of second hand. And the hard, the hardest part is that it's a four umpire system. And as you know, in Canada, we really don't work a lot of four umpire system, right? So I think most people that know me, at least in, in this part and, and probably on the country, know I. I like to stay involved with preparing materials and teaching and, and doing that sort of stuff. I'm always watching or helping to, to prepare presentations or, or footage or material. So that's one way that I always like to stay into both the rules and the mechanics, um, watching videos when you're creating presentations, right? But if you eventually work enough of it, it's kind of like riding a bike. Uh, and in both those, and usually in those events, there's a couple of warm-up games because the same thing right there, the teams are getting a couple exhibition games in. So you get out there, you work a couple innings at third, a couple innings at second, a couple innings first, you're rotating similar to the major league guys when they're working spring training games. Okay. That, that's your preparation. You, you can't, you don't have to worry about calling pitches. I mean, in the premier 12, because we are working home plate, that's a little bit different. That, that one was closer to the season, so there was a little more opportunity to work games later on. Kind of used to always think of it as going back to, to spring training for the first time. It's like your first couple of games in spring training. There's there's a feeling out period. You know, you got to focus a little more. Those you know those pitches that you normally can get away with in a spring training game or early in the season, they might mean something in that first game of that tournament. So yep. there is a little bit more pressure. 
uh, involved with that, but it's hard to pre- it's hard to prepare. It really, unfortunately, is only working the bases in the WBC has been. It's a nice feature of that event, and it also means you can do a little more stuff in the day. You don't have to worry about you know squatting up and down for four hundred pitches in a game and uh, having an afternoon nap, for example. So. Just to confirm, the plan is that you would work the plate at the Olympics, right? Yeah, we'll work the plate in the Olympics if, uh, knock on wood, if it happens. Right. Uh, I mean, I don't know the system. They're, they're, the way the schedule is set up for that tournament, looking at it, uh, I think it's a round robin. So every team plays every team. Okay. So I think it would work out to, well, we only have four teams that have qualified. So there's still supposed to be two more qualifiers for the Olympics. Okay. Uh, my understanding, the last I heard, was they're going to be in June. Uh, I don't know the timing. I don't know the location of them. They originally were scheduled to be in Arizona. Yes. One was going to be uh, in Taiwan the week after, so that way logistically they would be able to fly over for the last chance tournament. But I'm not sure what they're going to do at this point. Uh, we have four, so you you would ultimately have. I think the schedule works out to six teams. <laughs> something like 20 games or so so you're probably okay. working one or two plates each okay and then you'll have the the medal rounds and my guess is probably six umpires per game but you got to remember now the olympics will have replay as well okay so, i didn't know that yeah so premier well wbc has introduced replay they used it at the the last premier 12. yeah we know uh, aaron roberts got challenged a couple times post show edit of course we're going to throw a link to those challenges in the show description so check them out now back to the show we, we used it at the Olympic qualifier in 2019 in Italy that I was at. So it will be part of that. You know, you're always going to have an umpire that's actually working the camera for your instant replay. Right. And, and one thing that they try to do or have tried to do, and it can't always work, uh, but they generally will try to have the, the umpire working the as the replay official speaks the same language as the crew chief. Okay. Because otherwise, you, you know, you always have this, that is one of the downsides to international baseball, obviously, is not only communicating with players and managers and using translators, but also communicating with your fellow umpires, right? So it's, right. it's tough. You're out there and you have to get together. So that's one thing we try to do to help with that is, is speak the same language as your replay official. And uh, having been in the replay room at the Olympic qualifier, and I think they can probably attest to it, Aaron, and those guys from the last Premier 12, their system is really good. You know, they've got like a Hawkeye system that was similar to that being used in professional tennis. So if you can imagine the camera angles and how those cameras work and how specific they can be, it's really, really great how you can align them all. So you're looking at multiple camera angles at the exact same time and you can zoom in and you can slow them down and and go frame by frame simultaneously. It's a great system they have in place. So with that, you know, six umpires maybe if they want to put them and then you have a replay official so everyone will be pretty busy for for that i think with 12 of us that's fantastic let's stay positive let's hope you get the olympics because we're all going to need to watch some live sports come this summer yeah you mean you look forward to the olympics and not uh, not instant replay because no umpire looks forward to instant replay that's for sure i know every time aaron roberts gets pulled on and he loves it he loves the camera coming in on his sweet little baby face and yeah, that's 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 great. It's it's also when you you look at the board and you realize you're wrong and you're going to get overturned and you just have to wait for it. Yeah, that's that's, uh, yeah. that's the crap part of it all. That has to be one of the most painful things for a guy, even in the major league. They look at the replay on the board and they're like, "It's going to okay. They're going to overturn it. Why do I still have to stand here for another minute and a half?" Yeah, I've uh, I had instant replay in 2017 at the World Baseball Classic, and most people that know me or follow know that my 
first call I went to replace 14 second base was overturned. It frankly wasn't even close. And this is another post show edit. Do you think that we would have a scenario at the World Baseball Classic where we wouldn't have a video to not back it up? If you're looking for it, check it out in the show description. Now enjoy the story. Back to the show. Um, and I had to watch it, and it was really painful to watch. And it plays mind tricks with you, right? It screws with your mind because oh, yeah. uh, the next time you have another instant replay, you're thinking, oh, my God, did I get this one wrong too, right? Like, as umpires, we generally have confidence in ourselves. We're A-type personalities. You, you have to have that confidence in you, right? We sell ourselves. We sell the call. And then you watch that. You kick the crap out of something. And then you, the next time it happens, you, you know, this little voice in the back of your head is saying, did I just miss that too? Like, come on. Yeah. It was an experience. I, I talked to Stu often about that here. I mentioned it to him like that. You know, I feel for those guys having to go through it so long and, and they don't get credit at the major league level. Right. And, you know, we often call it the top step and, and they don't keep track of the top steps. And, and what that refers to is, you know, we see all these stats and there's all these websites online that show umpire stats and, you know, they were four for 10 and overturned, but they never keep track of the number of times that the manager comes on the top step and holds the umpire saying they want to watch the replay before deciding if they want to go to replay. Right. No one, no one counts those. So you might be four for 10, but for all, you know, you had, you know, maybe Stu had 60 of those this year. Pick Stu because, you know, we know him and we're talking about him. But any of them, they might have had 60, 80, 100. Almost every play is now being looked at oh, before yeah. the next pitch, right? And uh, the benefit of international baseball is they don't have that video replay room available. You're pretty much looking over right away. And it's, you know, 20 seconds, we have a clock. Are you going to replay? And they just got to flip the coin and say yes or no. So benefit of international right and not to hammer on Stu because it's your show but that was one of my favorite things in the last episode where he had a situation where the guy slid in he called it and the players pointing at the dugout like check replay and he said I'm thinking in my mind yeah they check every play on replay buddy yeah exactly (laughs) like yeah exactly you're not really selling anything the first one I had was it was it was one of those um area plays at second base it was the World Baseball Classic, it was a semifinal, and I was at second base, and the, the throw beat him there by 15 feet. Buster Posey was running from first to second. He's out by 15 feet, but of course, you know, the shortstop comes off early, no problem. And right away, I'm telling you instantaneously, Philip, he's he's pointing. He's off, he's off, replay, replay, replay. And I'm like, really? Like, you're up by 15 feet. And of course, the World Baseball Classic in 2017 they gave the managers unlimited reviews. Oh, shit. <laughs> so not one you're wrong and you lose it unlimited because it was new to them. Okay. And so they let them do it unlimited times. And so, you know, Jim Leyland comes out and says, I, you know, I want to go to replay. I'm, All right. So, you know, me and Cooper run over to the headsets. And of course we put them on and we go to New York and we're listening and I'm watching it because they start showing them all now. Right. And, uh, you know, I like I could tell you within three seconds that I was getting overturned. Probably two. The first two probably took that time to load to that point in the play. <laughs> you know, and then of course it got it got overturned. So you know, you go back out there and and uh, you're deflated. And that was early in the game. I think that was like the second inning, and I ended up with two more replays in the third inning. 
So by the end of the third inning, I had already gone instant replay three times in that World Baseball Classic game. And uh, we were joking in between innings. Cooper and Lance Barksdale was working right field. And we actually thought I was going to set a record. I was on pace for nine instant replays in one game. <laughs> we had three and three innings. And, and thankfully, we didn't have any more for the rest of that game. So yeah. it, it is it is stressful. And uh, it and, is what it is. Right? It comes yeah, with the territory. No question. And during that around that time, that's when the rules were almost changing with the something you don't get is instant replay every day and your habit of, yeah, we're good. Let's move on. And I think major league umpires suffered through that time too, where they were so used to, yeah, we're good. And they're under the microscope of, you know, a guy popping off the base by one uh, inch, yeah. you know, and, and, and now, you know, they're being called out. And I don't think that's what instant replay was originally intended for. That's how it's developed. And yeah, uh, I like the old days, you know, of the home run calls and interference on home runs and, yeah, we had instant replay in 2013 and that was a really crazy setup because it was still new, but it was only for home runs and fan interference. But in Asia, because it's not connected to New York, they had this modular instant replay setup. So in our dressing room, we had like seven screens with these huge, you know, suitcases that were lugging them around and you'd actually would have had to run into the replay room and watch it and then run back out. They have evolved and come a long ways, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's tough on those guys, and you know none of us should ever fault them if they get overturned. It's uh, we all know how tough it is being out there, let alone under a microscope. Oh no question, and I think we can have a whole other episode about that whole popping off the bag scenario. So I think we'll come back to it, <laughs> or not. Yeah, or not. But just to put it out there. Being named the Olympics, you're part of a very exclusive club. Let's go 1984, Dave McManus out of New Brunswick went to Los Angeles. 1988, Jim Cressman out of Ontario, Seoul, South Korea. 92, Ozzy Cheveria, British Columbia went to Barcelona, Spain. 1996, Glenn Johnson out of Manitoba went to Atlanta. And Glenn eventually went on to become a CFL full-time referee and supervisor. 2000, Robert Belrose out of Quebec went to Sydney, Australia. 2004, Don Gilbert out of Ontario goes to Athens, Greece. And 2008 was Ron Suchuk and Brian Hodgson out of Manitoba. Man, Manitoba has three officials that have gone to the Olympics. Wow. But wow, what an exclusive club you're a part of and all the best in that trip. That's uh, that's quite the group. You know, I obviously don't know all of them. I, I haven't met them all, but I know Jim well, obviously, and Don and Ron. And uh, I'm not sure if I've met Brian through all of our travels, And uh, but obviously it's... Uh, it's a great list, and I'm, I'm proud to be included amongst them and, and hopefully follow through with it. Now, we talk accolades. You've been a few places. I just want to talk quickly about you, some of the awards that you've received over the years. In 2008, you were named the Baseball Ontario Don Gilbert Umpire of the Year. And then in 2011, the Baseball Canada Dick Willis Award recipient. I know as umpires, we're kind of personal individuals, and we don't like to talk about ourselves or make the game about ourselves. But what is it like to have those awards on the mantle? Yeah, it's, I mean, honestly, anytime you receive an award or you're recognized by your your peers or, you know, a group you're a member of, it's it's an honor and, frankly, slightly embarrassing. I, I'm not one for accolades. I, I know 2011, I flew out to Winnipeg for that, to receive that award for the night. They, they were gracious enough to take me out there for the convention. And obviously any award named after Don Gilbert, who was, you know, instrumental in the Baseball Ontario program. And, you know, I wouldn't say he was one of my mentors per se. He was, you know, in charge of the program when we started. Was still the supervisor at the time. I just didn't know him as well. He was sort of transitioning out after 
um, at that point in time. And then I was obviously away in the U.S. A great gentleman and, and an honor to be recognized for, for both of those awards. I tell you, you're a man of a lot of stories and, you know, a champion in the pool, been all over the world umpiring. But 2014, you receive a special award. You're named the Toronto Police Service Police Officer of the Year Award. Can you just share with us quickly how that came to be? Yeah. Um, or if you, if you don't want to, you don't have no, to. No, 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 that's, uh, that's an honor. It's, it's, it's another one of those where I'm obviously appreciative and it, and it means a great deal to me to be, to be recognized. And I, I slightly feel guilty sometimes for, for that award, if I'm being quite honest with you and truthful. And I've been honest this whole time, so there's no reason not to. But that was a group of us that actually received that award. It was a, a tragic accident, actually, that, that happened while I was a, a uniform officer still with the, the Toronto Police Service, where uh, a car with a group of teenagers were were speeding down one of our highways near the lake and lost control, went through a guardrail, and car ended up in the lake. And so, fortunately, we weren't able to save one of the, the teens that were in that car, but the other three were rescued and got them out of the lake and, and saved them. So that's the circumstances behind that i mean i wish obviously we could have saved uh the fourth teenager uh but it was it's still an honor being recognized with a great group of uh, police officers for that and I, I definitely keep that one proudly on the mantle that's for sure it's good to hear that you display it proudly and it's one of the things that in this climate today and i don't want to get political on the show here but i do appreciate all the work that our servicemen and women and our first responders and Everyone that actually goes out every day as good people to try to do the best they can to help people within their community because, you know, we're seeing it right now. The world is in a different place with this virus and everyone's feeling it. So I do want to say thank you for everything that you and your family of first responders and police officers provide. Well, thank you. I think it's a, it's a community, though, of uh, first responders and uh, medical professionals and doctors and, you know, frontline nurses and nurse practitioners. I heard a chuckle there. Yeah. Uh, I know what you do. I yeah. think if I'm correct. And uh, my wife's a nurse practitioner on the front line as well. Oh, nice. And, uh, at a major hospital here in Toronto as well. So, you know, it's, it's not just police, obviously it's a, a difficult climate for the police right now. And uh, we're working through that uh, at every level, even our own service. But uh, I do say, you know, knock on wood, we're, we're not quite at the, the same situation as our, as our friends to the south right now, that's uh, I do feel that it's a, definitely a tough situation for them. But uh, you know, firefighters, paramedics, everybody, everybody working, especially on this with COVID right now on the front lines, and it doesn't even have to be to your point. I'm going to give a shout out to everybody. It doesn't have to be a frontline first responder, right? It's all the people out there providing the essential services and yeah. in our long term nursing homes and, and caring for those people and the risk that comes with it. So. Shout out to everybody. Thank you for everyone out there for everything they do too. No question. Thank you. Now we're going to move on to a more happy part of the show that a lot of our listeners seem to enjoy. I've had fun the entire time. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. We've gone for a somber moment here, but let's transition. We call this section 10 questions. Okay. It's quite simple. If I, I'm going to ask you a question and it's, this is more about Trevor Grieve and not, there might be some umpire questions, but you'll get the understanding. If I like the answer and agree with you, and Hold on, time out, time out. Since I'm following in big footsteps, please remind me, did Stu do this and what was his correct responses? 
I don't think he had too many. <laughs> we kind of disagree on a lot of things. I, yeah. I haven't been through them all with everybody. Um, so I don't want to know all of their responses. I, I have them downloaded and uh, enjoy <laughs> well. them on my, my trips to and from work when I'm driving in. So let's do this. I'm ready. Okay. First Nothing thing, the people want to know, do you have any pregame routines? Are you superstitious? Anything like that? Well, you mentioned earlier that you don't want to talk about certain things on this show. So I do have pregame routines. My, my pregame routine has changed drastically, though, from minor league baseball until now, obviously. But in the minor leagues, it was always the same. It was put on my long johns, sit on the floor, rub my baseball, sitting in a V. And then I'm very well known for probably three to five pregame pees before every single game. I don't know what you're denying there, uh, frankly. <laughs> Frankly, if you don't have a pregame pee, you're in trouble. Fortunately, we've already talked about that. We get it. Your bladder is the size of a Saskatchewan gopher. I can't believe I got gonged on that. Move on. Next one. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Now talk- you're just abusing your host privileges. <laughs> yeah. Take it any chance I get. But now you talked about being on the road for a long time and rotating through restaurants. Do you have a favorite fast food restaurant? <sighs> Chick-fil-A. That's like all organic stuff, isn't it, or something? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Just don't try and go there on a Sunday because if uh, if you do and they're closed and my wife yells at me for the next three months. <laughs> Always got to keep our significant others happy, I tell you. I was too impatient to wait on the line on a Friday, and I said, we'll stop on Sunday, not realizing they were closed. And, of course, I never heard the end of that. So <laughs> mental note. But Chick-fil-A, next. That's me with Popeyes. But next question. Ooh, Popeyes, good sandwich. Keep going. Oh, it is. Okay, next question. What was the last concert you seen before the pandemic hit? Pink. Oh, no, 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 I had to change my mind there. I've never done that before. I actually, you know what? You're like, ah, pink. And you're like, no, that, she got it. I had to think about it, yeah. My wife and I went to see Pink. Great intro. She puts on a show. Oh, yeah. I'm not ashamed. Yeah, no, she, I've watched a lot of videos on YouTube and I'm not ashamed to say that I've watched her. So I got to give you the credit there. Since we're talking music, what is one concert that you need to see when this pandemic's over and we can all get back to normal? Oh man, I'm going to be really embarrassed and I am definitely getting gonged for this for sure. It's the Backstreet Boys Um, are okay. Similar to Backstreet Boys, who is the artist that sings this new song out right now, Wonder? Wonder. Well, there was Natalie Merchant. She she sang Wonder years ago. Nope, I know who the artist is, and I thought his concert is going to be perfect to see in person. Oh, come on, Trevor. Think here. Think here. Think here. Okay, I gave you enough time. It's Sean Mendez. Oh, that's who I want to go see. Yeah. Uh, I don't care. I'm (laughs) saying it with pride. You know. I'm almost ready to turn the turn the broadcast off. Nope. Don't care. Okay. You can keep laughing all you want. Focus. You're the host. Let's go. Yeah. Oh, when I hear focus, you know what that means, eh? No. And I'm not going to use the F word, but we know what it is. Off because you're stupid. Let me try that again. Focus. Let's go. <laughs> okay. You've been all over the world. When you fly, do you fly coach or first class? Do you think I'm Stu? Oh, I just, I'm just I was last week's guess. I am nothing but economy. Oh, man, you got to start working your way up to the front. You got to be like, I'm Trevor Grieve. Let me in first class. I would love to. And in fact, the last time I got bumped up to first class was with Stu. Yeah, yeah. I I think they thought we were a couple. 
Um, we were the last two to get onto a plane. Take we were heading out to Charlottetown PEI to teach a clinic out there. Twenty seventeen, we flew out there. Kent Walker arranged it, and I th- we were heading out there together. And last two tickets, and we had been upgraded together. They had two, and they bumped us up. I think because they saw that he was a frequent flyer, big shooter. But uh, that's it. Yep. Knowing Kent and his big wallet, I bet you he covered the cost for you. Okay, let's get back to umpiring. You've been around the world. You've umpired with some major league guys and some guys in the minor leagues and at school. Who is your favorite major league baseball umpire? Now, it doesn't have to be a person or anything. It can be just the style, but who do you like the most? I do. Jim Wolf's my favorite umpire. Okay, I'm just going to take it pipes like that, too. Uh, I'm going to have to start tapering my shirts a little uh, bit more. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he's one of one of my favorites. I have a few though. You know, I, I I really seem to you know like the guys that have the relaxed mechanics, but they're still pretty, you know, smooth. I, I like some of those. You know, Chris Guccione's yes. flair. <laughs> he has and, the biggest uh, flair, no question. His flair is is increasing every year. There's a little oh. more oomph in those hip twists. There's oh, it's 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 a show to put on there. But uh, you know, there, there's quite a few that I I think I, I quite enjoy watching. Yeah. Uh, no hometown bias, but uh, yeah, I'm going Jim Wolf. I'm going to give a shout out to the secondary mention to actually a AAA fill-in umpire, Sean Barber. You're right. Just because they're call-up guys doesn't mean they don't have that sense of confidence no. and that sense of... Just- and anybody watching him, he is so smooth. He he gets into a great stance and his mechanics, it's, it's just he's sharp. He's a smaller guy, but he makes it work. It yep. looks damn good. Next. Okay. Your life was a movie. What song or a couple songs are you throwing on your soundtrack? I pass. I don't know. I don't know what song. Don't I can sing the odd lyric, but uh, I am not the person you want to have on Name That Tune. Let's put it that way. Well, I'm glad I you can even think of Sean Mendez. Come on. Okay. I'm glad you can share the odd lyric, but share with us maybe a secret talent then. Well, speaking of talents and lyrics, I actually know every single word to the one song, The Humpty Dance by Digital Underground. And not many people can say they can do that. I'll give you that because not many people can say they do it and it's a secret talent. So if you're willing to. All right, stop what you're doing because I'm about to ruin the image and the style that you're used to. I look funny, but you're making money. CCO world, I hope you're ready for me to gather around. I'm the new fool. All right, see? That's a little sample for you people out there. Great. Now I have to deal with copyright issues. This is fantastic. Uh, nobody's paying to hear that let's put it that way <laughs> yes, I'm, no royalties coming from this show i'm just putting it out there it costs me money but that's another story you talk that you're a police officer i want you to think of what kind of police officer you are do you think that you're more detective turner from turner and hooch or would you pride yourself in being like a horatio kane from csi oh he takes his glasses off so well oh yeah uh, horatio kane yeah <laughs> Oh no no Turner he's just so, he's just so worked up and but relaxed at the same time. Yeah, but I could just pull those glasses down and, and look out into the camera and say you're under arrest. Yeah, don't you solve the mystery just by touching the glasses themselves? In, in all fairness, you know Horatio Kane has a hundred percent solve rate. So if I'm gonna follow <laughs> after somebody, then I'm okay with that. Now, last question: What would be your dream Major League Baseball park to umpire in? Well, my experience, let's be frank, my experience only comes down to two parks, right? Which right. was San Francisco and Dodger Town. But hey, that's two more um, than I got, so it's a pretty big deal. 
God, they were both fantastic stadiums. But of those two, I'd be in, I'd be in Dodger Stadium for sure. Right. All of them, I would say, just from a style. Oh, God, I've really enjoyed the last couple of years. We've been to a few. I've really started to enjoy watching games in some of those smaller parks. Pittsburgh's a great park overlooking the water there with the yellow bridges. I'm going to go Pittsburgh. What is it? PNC Park, is it? PNC Park. Yeah, I've never been, but I like to look at the parks and that's a nice one. It's, it's gorgeous. PNC, all of them, right? PNC, uh, Detroit's Park, they've all got that open air feel, but they're small, right? And yeah. and having lived in Toronto for so long and and the, the concrete jungle brick down there yeah. that we call Rogers Centre, um, I really do hope they tear it down, but I don't know where they're going to put a new stadium. But, you know, to have these open air stadiums with these 35,000 fan sort of feel, but, you know, you can get a hot dog and watch the game. That's what I like. You know, you can get food and not miss the action instead of going down a dark tunnel, seeing nothing. Yeah, that's where I'm going. That was the beautiful thing when I've gone to San Francisco. You got to go up and order a set of garlic fries and still get to enjoy the game. You know, my wife and I went to San Francisco. We watched a game and we were up on the top level. We were there. Uh, I taught a clinic for WBC in San Jose. So my wife joined me. We did a little Napa Valley and then San Fran trip. So we took advantage and went down to the game in San Fran. We lasted four innings. We were up on the the sort of the 500 level as you think about it. It was June and I froze my ass off. It's cold there. And and it was cold. And even my experience there, I think we probably had in 2013, we had, well, they provided us winter gear. And then we had, you know, three pairs of long johns on, long sleeve shirts I was borrowing from the guys. Yeah, it was cold. It is. (laughs) It was was cold. Between them and Oakland, you watch July games. They got jackets on. You're kind of like, how? But it, it, it gets down to about 12 degrees centigrade and then the wind kicks in. It's not fun. Wusses, wusses. Sorry, something stuck in my throat there. I think it said wusses. Wusses. Yeah, I I agree. Like, I mean, I'm not going to get into too much debate with Baseball Canada, but the fact that we only get issued short sleeve shirts in this country, I just don't understand it. But we we can hack it. (laughs) We're tough. Yeah, too many first class flights for some of those guys, too. (laughs) Okay, let's move on. We're almost done. One of the sections we like to go to right this close to the finish is what we call local legends. So just somebody that's giving back in your local community. We talk about the family. Who are the people that are giving back in your local area? You know, I hate to say this. This is sort of somewhat sad. I mean, a lot of my involvement in, in baseball Canada or baseball Ontario in the last maybe seven to 10 years has been at the committee level. I think I've kind of lost touch with a little bit of that, that local flair. Um, I've always had an interest in helping, you know, I really want to be involved with the senior level umpires, right? And, and that's a level four or five umpires. I think I have a lot to give back to them to, to help them sort of take that next step, right? You're, you're at that point at a major championship and, and then I can help you try to make some changes and adjustments and get you sort of ready to that international. So, you know, when I look back at my supervisions over the last few years, it's been senior, senior Canada Cup. And so locally, I, unfortunately, I, I don't know if I'm close enough, but I will say I do work with some really great people. I, and a lot of my time is here in Ontario. You know, the committee I work on for the province is great. Two people really come to mind for that for, for right now for me, which is Chris Wilhelm, who is really, you know, in retirement now, stepping up and, and taking on a much bigger portfolio. But 
as long as I've ever known him, has done nothing but contribute to our program. Uh, and Lisa Turbin, right? And both of them, you know, are developing. And, and I know that Lisa and Chris both do things at the local level. So I think they have some involvement there. I wish I had more, but you know, I've only got so much time in the day. I hate to say it. And, yeah. and I, I like to be involved with our, our senior level umpires and, you know, the, the national level program and, and international stuff and teaching some clinics now in other parts of the country. So I don't know if I have a great answer for that, but those are two people that I'd like to give a shout out to that I think are doing a great job for us and, and moving the needle forward always. So. That's fair, and I do appreciate the honesty, but the reality is, too, is that you have a skill set and experience that someone like myself can't provide. I can't teach somebody to work on the international stage. You have that. So it's really important, I think, that people realize and work on the skill set that they're good at so that they can improve the program as a whole from top to bottom. Yeah, and that's how I always look at it, right? I know it's, it's small, but I think it's those, we always talk about different levels. You're a new umpire. We're going to teach you how to get to position A to B. We're going to teach you where starting position is. Then to go from being your first level umpire to a good umpire, right? And then how do you go from being a good umpire to a great umpire? Right. And, and then it's, it's all about fine tuning, right? And a lot of it is game management. And I teach a lot and I harp on this. And I think people have the wrong idea of what game management is. Um, too often we consider game management just arguments. You know, how do you deal with an ejection? How do you deal with, but it's not. Game management is everything that starts from how do you prepare for that game? What do you do when you get to the game, right? We, you know, we talked about, I did a presentation today and, and part of that was getting into the ballpark and doing a walk around, knowing what your field is, right? Knowing where they're, knowing how can I prevent things from then how do I look? How do I present myself when I walk onto that field? How do I interact with people? Yes, there's always that de-escalation. And yes, there's times when I'm going to run somebody and we're going to go toe to toe and and it's inevitable because sometimes people want to get thrown out as, as a player or a manager. They all have bad days. We all have bad days. But it's those little things that get you from being a good umpire to a great umpire. And if I can pass on one or two of those things at each turn and I supervise that to, to some of those higher level umpires, that to me is a win. And just for everyone listening, we will put a link in the show description to that presentation because we have found it online already through the power of Google. So. <laughs> So if you're looking for some some explanation of the two-man or two-umpire mechanics, Trevor provides a great presentation today that he presented to... Yeah, no, it was uh, the Federation of Italian Baseball. And uh, they, again, we talk about creating opportunities and how doors open, right? And, and my relationship with Italy and, and their baseball program totally stems from, you know, meeting umpires at previous events. Uh, and then I was lucky enough to do the Olympic qualifier in Italy and got it. You talk about camaraderie and I might not be able to speak the same language as some of these umpires, but, uh, my wife and I stayed for two weeks after and toured Italy in every city. I mean, every single city I went to, there was a local Italian umpire waiting to pick us up and take us to a local restaurant or give us a tour. You know, it was unbelievable. The, the, the treatment, you know, not even respect, but just, yeah, respect, like just because we're umpires, because we're all part of the same group. We had a private tour of 16 chapels from a, a tour guide who's an umpire there. It is part of umpiring and that's what keeps us going. So whether that's locally or that's at a provincial championship, whether you're driving two hours to, to participate or six hours, don't say no. Don't say no unless you have to. Make those connections. I think this is a great time as well as any that 
we sent out a leading edge challenge and I challenge everybody to get out in their community and meet the people who are umpiring locally. Let's build our umpire communities through 2021. You know, let's work with the people that get our backs night in, night out, that know the local stuff that's going on and can really expand the umpiring community because it's been a tough year, but let's use 2021 as an opportunity to build umpiring in our towns that we can get better in our provinces and then better nationally. Absolutely. you. I couldn't have said any better than that. And I know some provinces out there have mentorship programs. Um, things aren't running necessarily. We might not see baseball this year, but, you know, still assign yourself to a mentor. Talk baseball. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, we can we can watch a major league baseball game and, and learn from stuff that happens there. And again, I always preface it. They're major league umpires. They don't do things we necessarily teach here in our program. Yeah, they have a lot of experience. Be careful. But again, just shoot the shit. Talk to each other. Talk umpiring. Talk rules. Whatever you got to do, keep people involved. And I think that's going to be a, pro, a challenge for all of our programs. You guys in, in Saskatchewan, us in Ontario, is, is staying connected to our, our local umpires, especially if we can't see them in person. You couldn't have said it any better. Reach out. Keep in touch. I agree. Because I think that we were able to survive the storm the first time, but 2021 is going to be the true trying test. So reach out to each other, please. Trevor, essentially that concludes this episode of The Leading Edge. I would like to thank you for coming on and sharing with us your stories. Now, one of the things that we like to do at the end is we like to leave the guests with the last few words, and we typically call it the parting words of wisdom. So what are Trevor Greaves' parting words of wisdom? I think people are sick of my parting words of wisdom, truthfully. I think I've just been preaching for the last 30 minutes at every opportunity I got. As an umpire, from an umpiring perspective, my, my words of wisdom would simply be, don't ever stop learning, right? Ask, ask your partners questions. Talk to them after the game. Seek their input. Um, just because we're used to doing something one way doesn't mean there's not another way that it can be done a better position to get to. We're a team, we're a team on the field. We should be a team afterwards. And I can't harp it enough. Don't say no, seek opportunities, right? From an umpiring career perspective, if if there's people listening, seek out those opportunities. Reach out to people you know, contacts in your program. Ask if they have games when games come back. Ask if they have tournaments. And, And don't burn bridges, don't burn bridges. And I say that in a sense that, you know, you might be working with somebody a year from now that you don't know today or tomorrow. Positivity. That's it. That's what I got. Well, that concludes this episode of The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Join us on our next episode, where we bring on British Columbia Baseball Umpire Association Provincial Supervisor, longtime Baseball Canada umpire and supervisor as well as international experienced umpire and a man who claims to have invented the Pop-Tart, Steve Butang. But before you go, we would like to leave you with this. There's an ancient proverb that states, an umpire who enjoys throwing their partners under the bus can eventually expect to find a convoy of buses coming for them. Take care, everybody, and stay safe.